Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. And winging it, comfortably conservative, the do-rag conservative, Malik Abdul, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. How are you guys doing this morning? Nailed it! Good. Yeah, I know, right? Nailed it. Yeah, it's cold out there. Oh, bitterly, bitterly cold. Not as yesterday. No. 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 It you was like 24 things? yesterday when I got that in the low. car. Yeah. Today that. was, at least it was 30. Improvement. Yes. <laughs> Improvement. Yes. And it's hump day. And for it's, us. it's for our us, hump it is day. hump day. Because yes. we are off we, Thursday, Thursday and Friday. Friday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we had the choice of Veterans really Day nice. or things. Yeah, so it was much better. It was resounding. Black Friday. We want Black Friday off. Easy. Easy. No Everybody, yeah, nobody doubted. Uh, what are you guys doing for Thanksgiving? We're laying low this year. Okay. But we're going to have like a friend's giving <laughs> after, like on Saturday, like a, like a barbecue-ish. That should be nice. Because, uh, no, I don't really like turkey. Like, why? Why? I never got that. Like Turkey is a dignified bird, Manila. I liked turkey as a kid, maybe, or, or maybe it was just the memories of being in California where it's 80 yeah. degrees. And <laughs> See, I can't and, even conceive of Christmas or Thanksgiving right? with that temperature. But like Thanksgiving Day Parade, all that stuff, fine when you're a little kid. Yeah. But as an adult and you're the one stuck cooking <laughs> and turkey's not like everybody's jam anyway. No, right. Not so, typically. But you know what everybody likes? Ribs and pulled pork. They can't do. Get past barbecue. Mm. They do. You're so, right. Saturday, we're gonna have like a friendsgiving. We, you know, everybody's gotta go somewhere else, so we'll do yeah. it Saturday. What about you? That should be nice. I'm going home. I'm visiting family. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so I'm gonna be leaving Wednesday, get back here mm-hmm. on like Saturday or Sunday. Oh, nice. good. You'll yeah. spend a few nice, days. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's nice. Because it's only Richmond. I mean, what, two hours away, give or take? Yeah, that's not that not that bad. Little, yeah. little, little, I'm gonna do some cooking. I cook all. I cook all my holidays. That's the one time of the year. Soul food is my favorite yeah. ah. um, cuisine, and so I got my. I'm going to get my greens today, so I can cook them. Collards. Uh oh. My candy you yams. You can Because you can't find yams everywhere, so I actually got yams instead of sweet potatoes. They are not the same. They thing. are not. No, they are not they, the they same. They are not the uh-uh. same. My grandmother used to make yams, not sweet potatoes. Yeah. How do I tell the difference? How does uh, a Californian tell the difference? It's called what? Uh, butter, sugar, brown sugar. Uh, orange juice, pineapple juice. Wait, I mean, is the so the yam itself is yeah. longer than a sweet potato. It's like oh. longer than a sweet potato. Most people use them interchangeably. But I'm doing that in my oh. macaroni and cheese. I think I'm thinking about. Um, I have a prime rib in the freezer, so I'm probably going to do a prime rib. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I treat my I treat myself. I eat a lot. I'm a little fat boy. So <laughs> my grandmother passed. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, and potato salad, um, mm-hmm. sweet potatoes or yams, all that stuff. All homemade. Went, all homemade, all of it went out the wedding. And so I haven't had potato salad and that stuff forever. There's a restaurant over here, a little hole in the wall that is so good. Their potato salad, um, yams, all this stuff tastes exactly like hers. Oh, wow. that's nice. So I am getting, what, like five, like a pound of it or five pounds to take it back home. It does oh, that's Okay, nice. so yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, made, I made my dough for my crust, my pie crust on yesterday. Did, you're oh, so you're throwing prepping? down. Oh, yeah, I wow. always prep my, I, my cornbread. I made that last week for my dressing. Sounds like we need to be over <laughs> Leek's house. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, when I first got married, uh-huh. we def- I, I definitely did all of that. Yeah. And then, you know, now that my son's at this age where 
He doesn't quite totally get what's happening anyway. Uh huh. And doesn't care. And doesn't care. <laughs> so right. I'm you just, set whatever standard you right. owe him now. Right. So I'm just gonna buy time. He'll be five next year, so he'll start knowing Until next year. Until it becomes year. a thing. Yeah. Right. Until he sees on TV, like, hey, what turkey, are we doing? mac and shit. Right. Right now, he doesn't know. Because you're setting your family values now. Right. Like, right. he's going to get accustomed to something going yeah. forward. And so whatever that is. So we, we can do that next year. We'll see the expectation next year. Yeah. I can slide by for one more year. I'm going to take it. <laughs> Kid's taking too much sleep from me already. I'm not going to lose sleep trying to get up early to baste a turkey all day and prep. No. To prep the dough for the bread. Man, I'm so jealous of that. That sounds so good. But yeah, maybe next year. Maybe next year. All right, with that, let's head over to less happy news. Uh, Let's go way over to the other side of the world where the G20 has ended and then an earthquake struck. Yeah. Terrible. I mean, I guess lucky timing. Yeah. For the G20. It's just like all those world leaders would have been in a similar area. Would have been in an earthquake, yeah. yeah. Earthquake zone. Uh, So over in Indonesia, the number of people killed by a 5.6 magnitude earthquake that hit Indonesia's Sianjur Regency on Monday, that death toll we told you yesterday was about four dozen, has now grown to 162. Oh, jeez. I mean, it's going to take a while, right? Like buildings come down or whatever to find out. That's a lot of people in like a day. Yeah. Yeah, one day. So according to the latest report by the Indonesian press, 162 people died from that quake that hit the country earlier in the day. Previously, the Indonesian National Agency for Disaster Countermeasures had reported that at 1234 GMT, so our time, 62 people were dead with at least 25 still remaining missing under debris. More than 2,000 houses were damaged. So, um... I'm sure that death toll will continue to rise, sadly, uh, over the coming days. Then to domestic news. Over in Colorado, according to local media reports, on Monday, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich is set to face five murder charges and five additional hate crime charges in connection with a mass shooting at an LGBTQ venue Saturday night. The shooting happened at Club Q in Colorado Springs, where Aldrich allegedly opened fire with a long rifle and also a pistol. Five people were killed, another 25 wounded. It ended when bar customers tackled Aldrich. They tackled him to the ground, took his weapon, kicked away his guns. Quote, I don't know exactly what I did. I just went into combat mode. One bar patron, a U.S. Army veteran, talking to the New York Times about His response during the attack, he said, I just know I have to kill this guy before he kills us. Uh, But ultimately, the suspect was apprehended alive. Then President Biden has approved an emergency declaration in the state of New York due to a severe winter storm that struck the region last week. The White House making a statement Monday saying, quote, Last night, President Joseph R. Biden Jr. declared that an, an emergency exists in the state of New York and ordered federal assistance to supplement state and local response efforts due to the emergency conditions resulting from a severe winter storm and snowstorm beginning on November 18, 2022, and continuing. Now, that's all in a written statement. The massive snowstorm hit the western parts of New York State, particularly in the areas near Buffalo, where 77 inches of snow. Where? In Buffalo? Yeah. 
I told you it was 77 like 77 yeah, like inches? Between six and seven feet. So. That's that, a lot. That's yeah. a lot of snow. I've never Jeez. seen that kind of I've snow. I've never seen that Hearing much snow. Hearing it in, in, in inches versus feet yeah. makes it sound. Because is, is six it feet is about normal. Like six feet is normal? You know, they get like four feet of snow. I'm you know, six feet tall. Like four. You mean the snow is taller than feet? You know, yeah. We know how they get the cars. They're like taller than yeah, cars. Pals. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 77 inches. Because I guess That you is can, a lot. Yeah, yeah. 77 inches of snow is... That's a lot. Yeah. That's why I say, yeah, there's going to be... Sadly, I'm sure frozen people found. Um, and I wonder what happened with the homeless, you know? Oh. Sadly. Uh, then Elon Musk on Tuesday said that the relaunch of Twitter's subscription-based blue service has been put on hold for an indefinite period until the organization has a full a foolproof system in place to deal with fake accounts. He said, quote, holding off, this is on his Twitter, he tweeted this. He said, holding off relaunch of Blue Verified until there is high confidence of stopping impersonation will probably use different color check for organizations than individuals. Okay. Well, he's just trial and error in real time. All right. And Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis recently inched closer to closing the gap with former President Donald Trump in regards to the 2024 presidential ticket, according to a new poll. Trump, who's hoping to become the first president that would ever serve two non-consecutive terms. Actually, I don't think that's true. I think we need, we have to ask Ted Rawl. I think there has been another president who has served two terms, but non-consecutive. I think, I feel like there's been one other. So I think, uh, I think you're right, but I can't put a name I on it. I can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a Ted Rawls question. It's a question. feeling, yeah. But I'm pretty sure there has been one. But anyway, I think uh, this piece of the article that we're reading is wrong. <laughs> um, Trump, who's hoping to become, obviously, POTUS 47, yeah, 45 slash 47. He's polling at 46%, according to a new Harvard, Katz, and Harris poll. His numbers shot down about nine points since last month as a growing number of Senate Republicans have turned their backs on him because they view him apparently as too politically extreme to win the presidency. But Ron DeSantis just won his re-election for governor, is being eyed as a potential presidential candidate by members in his party, had his polling improved by 11 points since last month, bringing him to... 28% standing for a hypothetical 2024 Republican primary, though he is still significantly way, way, way behind Donald Trump. Grover Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that who it was? Yep. Okay. That's who it is. Non-consecutive term. Yeah. I knew it. It's yeah. the only one. Because that felt wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that just felt wrong. It was yeah. Like, there had, there to be. had to be another yeah. president somewhere down. Yeah. Grover Cleveland. There you go. Non-consecutive president. All right, international news. Victory for journalism, finally. A little bit. I'm going to clap for that one because yeah, I've, I've been complaining about this for a week. The Associated Press has fired the journalist who used erroneous information from a source to report that the missile that fell in Poland and killed two people last week was allegedly launched by Russia. Remember he said that? In that article dated November 15th, journalist James Laporta reported that an unnamed C-130 
senior U.S. intelligence official told him Russian missiles crossed into NATO member Poland, killing two people. Now, though Associated Press's alert service, the article was picked up by numerous other media outlets and raising public fear over a direct conflict between Russia and NATO. The next day, November 16th, the AP took down the report and replaced it with an editor's note saying that the the anonymous source had been wrong and that, quote, subsequent reporting showed that the missiles were Russian-made and most likely fired by Ukraine in defense against a Russian attack. So just a little walk back by the AP, but you got to get that in there, that that this is like a 45-year-old missile that the Soviets made, so it wasn't even technically Russian. It wasn't even Russian. Yeah, that always bugs me. They conflate the two um, on, on purpose. Do it all the time. So Laporta was fired following a brief investigation. Uh, People at the AP talking to the Washington Post. I'm sure they don't like being the subject matter of the news, but, you know, there they are. So the WAPO quoted an AP spokesperson saying that the decision on firing the staff were not based on isolated incidents. Wait a minute. What? Wait a minute. So this is Mr. not Mr. Laporta's first strike. How many other of this guy's articles are bogus? Or, I mean, erroneous? He's only been there after 2020, right? I don't know. I think it was, uh, uh, yeah, April 2020. A 35-year-old investigative reporter has been with the AP since 2020. Yeah. So I wonder how many other, you know, anonymous sources he has and how many stories he's reported, reported erroneously. And they kept him on. Right. So if it's not his first strike, that's what this says. So I'm curious now. Hmm. All right. Then Russia says they will search for the killers of the Russian prisoners of or of Russian descent, the prisoners of war of, you know, Russian backers. Yeah, this is weirdly written. But the video that we saw that the New York Times has confirmed. They basically murdered of, those Russian soldiers. Right. The POWs uh, that Ukraine killed that they must be found and punished, according to Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov. He said on Friday, the Russian defense ministry said that the Ukrainian military had deliberately killed more than 10 captured Russian servicemen, shooting them in the head at point blank. Quote, of course, Russia will search for those who committed this crime on its own. They must be found and punished. Now, Russia is ready for an international investigation into the murders of those prisoners of war if there is hope for the probe's effectiveness. Otherwise, it makes no sense, Mr. Peskov said. Then Kosovar leader Albin Kurti said on Tuesday that he decided to postpone fines for car plates with a Serbian identifier for the disputed region at Washington's request. You might recall us talking about this story about two months back, um, that they were looking for reasons to pick fights Mm-hmm. Um, in Kosovo with oh, the Serbians. Right, right. Like, no, when you get here to this area, you have to put on this new license yeah, plate. Yeah, it's a license plate. Pull thing. over and unscrew your license plate. <laughs> so he says, quote, I thank the U.S. ambassador to Kosovo, Jeffrey Hovenier, for his commitment and engagement. I accept his request for a 48-hour postponement on imposition of fines for illegal KM and other car plates. They're serious about car plates out there. Yeah. You better change them license plates. <laughs> <laughs> I'm they're happy. doing that just to be they're, yeah, just an ass. Pick, yeah, just yeah. to pick a fight. And you need to change that plate. 
That's basically what <laughs> so the e- he says the EU's looking to find a solution during the next two days about the license plate not plate. having to change license plates. It just seems like there are bigger problems. It's so petty. It's, it's so petty. <laughs> it's so petty. I need you to change the plate when you cross the border. Like, dude, I cross the border twice a day. Like, my mom lives on this side. I'm right. just bringing her grocery. But I was just here 30 minutes ago. I went to the store. Change it. Over there. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's that kind of problem happening over there. So, he says, so instead of KM, the Serbian identifier for this disputed region of uh, Kosovska Mitrovica, which is what provoked the crisis. So it's like a little little thing, mm-hmm. a little insignia on the plate. It made him furious. Get angry. And the transitional government of Mali has banned the operation of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, that are funded by France. Quote, the activities of all non-governmental organizations operating in Mali and receiving funding or financial or technical support from France are prohibited. The transitional government speaking on Monday evening. The decision also applies to NGOs operating in the humanitarian fields. Now, in the spring of 2022, the Malian government announced that it was terminating defense agreements with Paris and called on the country to withdraw troops involved in the operations in Barkhan and Takuba. Then Moscow calling on Turkey to show restraint in light of the strikes on Syrian territory. Tensions cannot be allowed to escalate, says Russia's special presidential envoy for Syria, Alexander Lavrentiev. Quote, We will call on our Turkish colleagues to show certain restraint in order to prevent an escalation of tension, not only in the northern and northeastern regions of Syria, but throughout the entire territory. Mr. Lavrentiev said at the beginning of the 19th round of talks at the Syrian settlement in Astana. Now, he said work with all interested parties should continue and an attempt should be made to find peaceful solutions in this Kurdish issue. Then this day in history, back in 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, reportedly, by Lee Harvey Oswald while riding in an open-top motorcade down in Dallas, Texas. In 1969, isolation of a single gene announced by scientists at Harvard University. And in 2005, Angela Merkel becomes the first female chancellor of Germany. All right, that'll do it for your headlines this Tuesday, November 22nd. You are listening to Fault Lines. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, um, Malik, uh, last name, <laughs> Abdul. Abdul, thank you. It's, it's like you're trying to do this stuff off the fly. Sometimes this stuff leaves your mind. Uh, but look, we'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines, back shortly. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to reiterate this story. We had a conversation with Scott yesterday, and there are elements of that conversation with Scott that I disagree with. But with Scott, you always have to think about it a little bit just because you can't necessarily discount his experience on that stuff. But 
Where Scott thinks it's more intentional, I have a tendency to believe that it's less intentional and people usually take advantage of situations that necessarily engineer those situations, even though it's potential for engineering. The, that story, though, is directly related to the Associated Press piece about the firing of the journalists. And I'll just read the headline again. The Associated Press has fired a journalist who used erroneous information from a source that reported the missile that fell in Poland and killed two last week has allegedly or was allegedly launched by Russia, media reported on Tuesday. In an article dated November 15th, journalist named James Laporta reported that an unnamed, quote, senior U.S. intelligence official says Russian missile crossed in a NATO member Poland, killing two people, unquote. Though through Associated Press Alert Service, the article was picked up by numerous other media outlets, thus raising public fears over a direct conflict between Russia and a military alliance. The next day, one day later, on November 16th, the Associated Press took down the report and replaced it with an editor's note saying the anonymous source had been wrong and that, quote, subsequent reporting showed that the missiles were Russian-made, which they were not, they were Soviet-made, and were more likely fired from Ukraine in defense against a Russian attack, unquote. Laporta was fired followed, following a brief investigation. People at the Associated Press told the Washington Post. The newspaper quoted an AP spokesperson saying that the decision on firing staff were not based, quote, based on isolated incidents, unquote. The reason that this took such predominance or such gravity is obvious. If you have a situation where Russia has basically launched a missile that went into Poland, well, at this point, what, Article 4 is initiated, people start talking, and then potentially Article 5 is initiated, where you have a full-scale war. Media is extremely important in the sense that they set narratives. And all things being equal, they can, and they have in the past, provoked wars. Oftentimes, media is used by various governmental institutions, or for that matter, the political space, in order to put something in the water. Sometimes it's the attack, an enemy that you don't necessarily like. Sometimes it's put something in the media that you don't necessarily want to touch yourself, but you want talked about. Or in other cases, to provoke a larger conflict. Now, I don't know what Laporta's rationale was um, in putting the story out like this. One source, apparently, was what he was using. That source wasn't apparently a senior source. And to make it even worse, apparently they're arguing that he basically lied to his editors, basically lied to the people that would look over saying that other senior people in the company basically has approved this story. Other media organizations immediately jumps onto it. This notion of, hey, let's Determine whether or not the story is true, as opposed to going with the bombastic result of the story that was out of the window. In which case, you get this embarrassing scene where all of these Western publications is basically blaming and accusing Russia of attacking Poland. All of which end up being wrong. You get Zelensky coming out screaming, the Russians did it! The Russians did it! In which case, he has the backup after several days of overt and outright lying. When even the president... Duda of Poland owns up to the fact, okay, this is, this is, this wasn't fired by Russia, even though it's a Russian missile. All of them wanted to at the very least have that little level of, res of respite. Look, I'll say this. We make all of this talk on social media about misinformation. We needed to get rid of Alex Jones from all of these publications. The president of the United States needed to be removed from Twitter. And even Jankowitz being added into the Ministry of Truth, despite the fact that the woman was basically lying through her teeth for months on end about the Hunter Biden stuff. And I'm pretty sure if I eat my Wheaties, I can find other stuff that she was basically lying about. So I guess my point is, look, for all of the talk, 
that we have on people like Alex Jones and how we have to censor media and we have to keep people quiet and not allow certain stories to be shown and everything else. Look at what Europe did from the standpoint of the war. You have a war between two parties. I would say it's more than two parties, but at the very least between two parties. One of the parties you want to get rid of, meaning we don't want anything coming from one of the parties of that particular conflict, despite the fact that you should want to hear from the other opposing part of that conflict. Otherwise, how do you get any sense of reality? And that's kind of the rub. The issue with people like Alex Jones is less about people like Alex Jones and more about the lack of credibility or the loss of credibility by mainstream media. Manila had a right to be pissed off at this. Her thing was, this is the Associated Press. These guys aren't supposed to be some kind of tabloid magazine. How on earth are they reporting this? How are they doubling down on this? And I even take issue with this notion of calling it a Russian missile. Since it wasn't a Russian missile, the Soviet Union and Russia are two different entities. I guess my point is this. If we want to take issue with misinformation from the standpoint of the media, I would say that part of the people or part of the edifice that we need to look towards is mainstream media itself. I mean, this isn't the first story that came out on this war. I mean, Zelensky wasn't insane to necessarily come out and lie. All things being equal, every other lie he came out with, or for that matter, the Ukrainian government came out with, was accepted as being some level of true, despite some of that stuff was just farcical. Why would Russia have to blow its own pipeline up when it controlled its own pipeline? Why would they bomb its own prison camp when it is their prison camp in order to kill Azov? That makes zero sense at all. And even what's taking place right now with the bombing of the Gibraltar power plant. We had a few weeks of relative calm. Those calm, that calm is basically over with, with the Ukrainian government lobbying bombs at a nuclear power facility. Now, you have to ask, why are they doing that? And I think it's pretty straightforward. Well, they want to create some kind of nuclear disaster. I guess my thing here is this. Even with that, you have Western media that has a hard time calling a spade a spade and dance around the edges or dance between the raindrops in order to call and make the point of saying, yes, Ukraine is bombing a nuclear power facility. It's not just Laporta that has screwed up this idea of, let's say, believability or believability in mainstream media. It's mainstream media as a whole, especially going on this particular issue of the war. I can bring up the NBC article where they talk one item after the next that the Biden administration basically was lying about. And look, I forgive on some level a government lying because I think all governments lie. It's a secondary thing on whether or not the media should cover those lies. And that's kind of where this boils down to. Look, you can point to Alex Jones and say he's full of it, but why would people go to somebody like Alex Jones in order to get information and data? And would they go to somebody like Alex Jones if the believability of mainstream media in and of itself took a major hit because of the things that mainstream media have been pointing out that have blied credibility or that have basically shot in the face of good common sense? And I would make the point that this is kind of the issue. Laporta shockingly gets fired, but Laporta wasn't alone in this. I mean, when you're looking at weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, whether you're looking at the Hunter Biden laptop, all of those things were given a certain degree, let's say, of believability when maybe they shouldn't. In the Hunter Biden laptop case, the idea that this was fake or Russian propaganda and the thing of Trump in Russia, this idea that Donald Trump got in office because of Russia, the thing of the nuclear weapons, that there were babies and incubators that were being tossed out by Saddam or for that matter, that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. One story after the next, the mainstream media has lost and ebbed away its credibility. And in losing and ebbing away its credibility, people start going and looking for other sources of information in order to try to back up the world 
that they see because the world doesn't necessarily make sense. And all things being equal, at the point where you catch mainstream media in line, one job, get it right. Then what is an average person to do? Is it right or is it weird that the average person will start taking the credibility of these organizations that are supposed to explain reality to the world or for that matter to the public? What they started taking those things with a grain of salt? And if they did start taking those things with a grain of salt, would they potentially go to other sources of information that may at the very least try to give some explanation of the world that they are seeing? My point here is very basic. Laporta is not alone, nor is Laporta alone in being another person who should be fired. All things being equal, they have basically accepted this premise that they can lie if it backs up their particular side. The one guy who gets hit for this, Laporta, I applaud that he lost his job over this. By the same token, he's not the only one who should be losing it. Excellent. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with the chat, the tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We will try to get to your calls at either 945 would have to be today. But I want to bring in our guests. We're joined with the one and only Karin Kanaizo. Um, Dr. Kanaizo is a former Minister of Foreign Affairs at Austria or of Austria and energy analyst. Um, Dr. Kanaizo, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. I hope this is also the case for all of you over there. We are doing fine, just a bit cold. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Um, but all things been equal, we're making it. We're kicking yeah, I along. wonder if, Dr. Kanaizo, since you're in Lebanon, Lebanon yeah. do they, has American holidays seeped over there to Lebanon? Because I remember when I lived in Dubai, um, and this is close to 20 years ago. Yeah. American holidays began seeping over there. Oh, like Christmas. American Thanksgiving, uh-huh. American Halloween. They never had that before. And suddenly now it's a thing. Is Has American culture seeped over there to Lebanon? Yes, definitely. I mean, uh, Lebanon has been in the focus of U.S.-American culture, soft power for quite a time. This is also due to the immense... Uh, a Lebanese diaspora that you have in Lebanon, in, in the U.S. And uh, so, uh, I mean, St. Valentine's Day, uh, Halloween, you name it, you have it. Yes, it has been here uh, quite popular. And, uh, well, and, and of course, also Lebanon has a sizable Christian um, uh, group. Uh, so it's, uh, but, but it's also the diaspora, I would say. It's the fact that the U.S. has played over the years, uh, well, Multiple roles. Uh, at certain instances, they withdrew, like 1983, after the, the, the massive attacks on the U.S. military barracks. But then they came back, and I'm told by Lebanese colleagues that uh, right now they want to build a huge embassy here. So this indicates that uh, even so, Lebanon is um, it's a tiny country. It's not Egypt. It's not Syria. Uh, it's not Iraq. It's it's tiny in surface. It has not the power projection that the others have. 
but it has always played a role for them. Wow, that's a, definitely American soft power. When when you see American influence, yeah, the holidays like start holidays, popping up. Yeah. Yes, that's how you know American soft power is succeeding somewhere. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, it is. And in Lebanon, it, it, it was always here somehow. Even so, I must say, it's, 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 there is a kind of a pluralism in, in Lebanon, which I appreciate now much more than I appreciated in the past. Uh, I've been coming to this country for the last uh, 35 years regularly. I've always been a rather critical of a number of things, but right now here's a, a degree of uh, freedom of press. <laughs> I, we, we, we can speak to each other. I can watch RT. I can uh, open any website I want. Uh, and that has also always been the case, freedom of speech. Uh, in Beirut, uh, each and everybody, I mean, just could say whatever they wanted. And this freedom of speech, freedom of, of mind, this is very, very, this was always very specific for the Middle East. But now I would say, uh, coming from Europe, I really cherish the freedom I can live here. Let me ask you this. Let's get into um, the story for today. So after the Istanbul attacks on November 13th, killing six people and wounding 80 others, uh, Turkish officials basically blamed uh, the PKK for this particular attack or Syrian affiliate, the YPG. And Erdogan, Erdogan has basically launched attacks. Now, these attacks came, I think it was Sunday. And it says launching the airstrikes on Sunday, Ankara declared quote, a day of reckoning had come for the Kurdish militias in the two regions. Interestingly, interestingly enough, the United States sends its condolences. Turkey basically says, we don't accept these condolences because, of course, the Kurdish uh, forces basically work with the United States in Syria. And they're even talking about, right here, Erdogan even made the point of saying this is not necessarily limited to air operations. Um, Erdogan told journalists um, on his return flight from Qatar, quote, if someone disturbs our country and lands, we will make them pay the price, unquote. Give me your take on this. I mean, it, Erdogan made the point of saying that Russian troops haven't necessarily done due diligence. But, I mean, all things been equal. The, um, the Kurdish forces are working with the U.S., not the Russians. It's a super weird comment. But give me your take in general um, on what is going on here. And Turkey is, let's say, further insistence and making inroads into Syria. Well, uh, there's a long chronology to this uh, land uh, operations. Uh, we, we can speak now officially of the fifth land-launched offensive, uh, large offensive, um, that uh, the Kurdish army is undertaking. Uh, maybe some of our guests remember the, the standoff um, uh, around Kobane, which is a, a Kurdish uh, frontier city uh, between Turkey and Syria. And there was a huge standoff. I think it was back in 2012, 2014. And uh, that, uh, I mean, that, it, it's a war of attrition. It's uh, a long-standing war of attrition between the Kurds and the Turks. Uh, with uh, moments of hope, glimmers of reconciliation, and then something happens, be it a terrorist attack, uh, be it the killing of a Kurdish politician, whatever, and uh, things go back to a freezing point. And uh, we are really facing here a historic enmity. It's it's very profound. It's very far-reaching. And uh, when I say far-reaching, it goes far beyond the region. It uh, goes far beyond the Kurdish uh, settlement, uh, what would be the proper term for it. Wherever Kurds live and they have no, they don't dispose of their own state. We know well, they, they, it's, it's the largest people without the state of 
state of its own. But it goes far beyond uh, Kurdish regions in Iraq, in Iran, uh, right into Syria. Uh, it also reaches, and this is the interesting point maybe also for our conversation uh, later in the morning, it goes right into Sweden because uh, Sweden disposes of a very important Kurdish uh, diaspora and uh, not just any kind of diaspora. It's not, you know, just people like who emigrated for economic reasons or uh, because they were, well, they, they wanted to leave for Europe. Uh, we, we do have, um, when we speak of the Turkish diaspora in, in Austria and Germany, often we don't know who is Turkish, who is Kurdish. And uh, there have been uh, infights over the last decades again and again. Uh, the, the authorities, the average uh, citizens, thinks, well, they are all Turks, but happen to be Kurds and Turks. And uh, Sweden in particular, also Vienna to a certain extent, uh, they have been home over at least 20 years now of um, a, a very important emigration of uh, Kurdish, um, well, uh, political figures. Uh, not not now the big shots, but people who are politically active. And uh, this is why maybe, if I if I may, uh, just uh, draw our all our our attention to to a crucial point. This is why. Uh, maybe this intervention at this point of of, of time now um, makes things more complicated, more and interesting from an analytical point of view, because as we know, um, Turkey is still uh, not really satisfied with the moves the Swedish parliament, the Swedish uh, government has been taken in order to uh, uh, enter NATO. And uh, Turkey is still somehow, it has not completely vetoed, but it will not ratify the Turkish Parliament will not ratify uh, the Swedish um, join the Swedish membership in NATO if certain well points they have submitted are not fulfilled. And now this timing of the uh, of this intervention with uh, all the impact it has, the repercussions on also Kurdish politicians living in Sweden. So this this makes it maybe a bit more complicated, different than from the many previous interventions we have seen. But explain something to me. I mean, the Russian military is in that region. I mean, is there ex- is Turkey's expectation or Turkey's expectation that they wouldn't get involved? I mean, it, it seems to be extremely complicated doing a ground invasion. You have, give me your take on that part by itself, though, before we move on any other parts of that. I mean, because it seems fraught with Difficulties. Like, I don't necessarily believe that Turkey is going to get into some kind of fight with the Russian military. By the same token, I mean, Russian peacekeepers are on the ground. Exactly. And um, I mean, I, I, I remember very well the years between 2015, 2018, when many analysts were um, worried, to say the least, about the fact that you have... Uh, a tremendous amount of weaponry, highly trained soldiers, and all kind of modern contemporary weapon uh, warfare by Turkey and U.S., which are at loggerheads in northern Syria. They support different groups, and the Americans have dropped support several times whenever it was not convenient for their larger strategic scheme, uh, their ter- Kurdish partners. So we have two NATO partners being at loggerheads in northern Syria. Plus, we have the presence of uh, the Russian armed forces ever since October 2015. 
And there were uh, problems between the three of them, but uh, there were also back channels, military technical communication, which uh, prevented uh, escalation. So for the past seven years, nothing really big has happened when you take apart the shooting down of a Russian aircraft, uh, combat aircraft by by Turkey, and 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 which was not a co- it was not an accident then. And we have, of course, also Iran being present there with all kinds of militias. Uh, we have various special forces by the United Kingdom, by France. Uh, uh, their their objective inter alia. I, I I don't know whether it's currently still the main agenda, but I remember well, uh, like uh, with the defeat of Daesh uh, Islamic State uh, in nineteen uh, pardon in 2017, 2018, when Daesh was uh, on on the withdrawal. Uh, what uh, many European special forces, among them in particular the British, the French, and I, if I'm not mistaken, also the Dutch participated, all what their game was uh, to, to, if I may say it under inverted comma, as uh, as bluntly as, as is necessary to do so, uh, their game, their, their aim was to shoot as many potential returnees, you know, their own citizens who had joined the uh, extremist Islamist forces, Daesh in Islamic State, from from returning back home. People have a British, uh, French, a Dutch, a German citizenship. So uh, you have all sorts of, um, of, of uh, units there. Uh, really, the, the, the list is long. It's, it's not only the, the Turkish army, the second largest NATO army that is now launching this huge offensive. And again, it's not for the first time. It's the fifth offensive within the past few years. And did any of these offensives, was any of them a a real game changer? No. What do you think their point is here, though? I mean, what is it called? Uh, Right here. They Quote, unquote. They're basically saying they neutralize, quote, unquote, some 184 terrorists. Again, quote, unquote. Um, Is this just the land grab? Or is this, is there something, is there a specific objective? that they're basically trying to accomplish with this? Or is it a land grab, as some people basically um, insinuate? Well, well, you see, the Turkish government is in a very difficult situation. For now, a few years, there was a rather rather calm, peaceful situation. I I myself traveled to Turkey over the past few months several times, and uh, Istanbul is is simply a a wonderful destination whenever you are there. And... uh, Normal life has come back to Istanbul when you compare it to the days of, uh, let's say, 2011 to 2014, there were many terrorist attacks and uh, tourists started to avoid Turkey. So people who are now coming back, and uh, last time I was in Istanbul was just a month ago, and uh, walking through this uh, uh, the Taksim Square, that place where the last uh, uh, heinous uh, crime took place, uh, killing several people, injuring dozens. I mean, you uh, anybody who has been to Istanbul knows this place and and has a second feeling. And 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 ask, you ask yourself, uh, if ever I travel back to Istanbul, will I go there? Will I avoid uh, crowded places? So. There's also an economic dimension to it because people had just started to to come back to some sort of normal interaction in terms of tourism. Uh, and, and, and also don't forget the, the, the pandemic, the COVID crisis. So tourism is, an, is a tremendous uh, source of income, especially for Istanbul and for the, the coastal cities. 
this might be, I, I wouldn't say that this is this is the main factor, but the Turkish government is and was under tremendous pressure to do something. You know, they just couldn't say, ah, there was a terrorist attack at Taksim place. Uh, so let's, uh, let's simply find the um, the perpetrators and uh, and bring them to court. They, 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 they felt being under pressure to do more. Whether this was not the right or wrong decision, not up to me to judge, you know, it's, this, is, this is the way they acted. Okay, uh, let me push back on this for a bit. So in right here, this is Seymour Hersh's. He wrote, this was the London Times right here, the red line and the red line. And he's making a point, Seymour Hersh is making a point about how the reason that Obama pulled back from his red line comment. And right here, he said, for months, there's been a acute concern, acute concern among senior military leaders and intelligence community about the role in the war of Syria's neighbor, especially Turkey. It says Prime Minister Erdogan was known to be supporting the Al-Nusra Front, a jihadist faction among the rebel opposition, as well as the Islamist rebel group. Quote, we knew there were some in the Turkish government, former senior U.S. official um, noted, who had access to current intelligence, told me who believed that they could get Assad's uh, I'm not going to say that part. I don't think I can say that, but in into a vice grip by dabbling with sarin attack inside Syria and forcing Obama to make good on his red line threat. Now, Hirsch's point here is that the reason that Obama didn't necessarily take that extra step of the red line stuff is because the terrorist groups that were basically being supported by Turkey were, let's say, having influence in Syria itself, specifically in context of the war. And this gets into the whole um, Kurdish rebels and everything else, basically the fights that were taking place between these groups. Um, is it as straightforward as Erdogan is doing this purely for the terrorist attack that took place in Istanbul? Um, or it, I, I guess the point I'm getting here is it's more complicated than just the economic concerns of Erdogan. But correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, you're fully right. I mean, nothing in life is monocausal, you know, there's not one unique and, and only reasoning uh, and one factor to to act. It's there are different reasons, different factors, triggering momenta, maybe even different schools of thought within the Turkish decision-making circles, those who claim we have to do more uh, in order to to show the Turkish flag, so to say, you know, and, and also to our people on the domestic front, because uh, Turkey, as they now call themselves officially instead of Turkey, is also confronted like many, many other countries, but in their case, it's to a worse degree and uh, an economic crisis and an inflation that is now beyond 80%. It was 20% a year ago. It has gone up to 80%. So uh, there is uh, unease at the domestic front for economic reasons. And uh, there is also some claim, I, I, I don't subscribe it fully, but some claim that uh, the elections of 2023 uh, and 2023 is not only an election year. Um, if we briefly look back at 1923, 100 years ago, it's the year of the proclamation of the Turkish Republic. And ever since uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan came into power with his uh, AKP party, which was in November 2001 the case, first he was prime minister and later on he changed the constitution and he's now Turkish Turkish president with powers uh, comparable to that of the French president. And there is no prime minister anymore. There's a, a, it's a presidential republic with, 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 with a lot of powers concentrated function of the president. Recep Tayyip Erdogan 
as far as I may uh, interpret him, and I had the, the honor to meet him once and we talked and mm-hmm. I've been reading, of course, a lot about him, somebody who has a lot of respect for Turkish diplomacy, in particular what has been going on over the last few months. But uh, to come back to 2023, again, it's not only an election year, it's 100 years. It's the one, it's the century of Turkish Republic proclamation. And uh, Mr. Erdogan, it's, it's, it's his, I would say it's his childhood dream, if I may say so, or his, uh, ever since he was a young politician, uh, to be president and to open the ceremonies and to open the big projects like uh, ports here, airports there, so, so, some other big projects. This, this is really his big aim. So 2023 is more than an election year. It's tremendously important for him as, as a politician who definitely already has his place in the history books, but uh, we will see what will be the the ultimate uh, assessment of this place in history books. I keep thinking in my head, picturing Erdogan cutting, (laughs) cutting, you know, with the big scissors, cutting ribbons, (laughs) opening, you know, new railway, new ports, smashing bottles on. (laughs) Every president wants, you know, that kind of uh, photo op, photo op, right? Especially going to an election. Especially going to election, going on the hundred year anniversary. Everybody wants that photo op. Every yeah. president wants that good press. Oh, yeah. right. Um, now, now, Doctor Kanaisel, one of the things you mentioned was economy, and I'd like to switch gears a little bit um, over to Europe because, according to the OECD, they have said about two hours ago they reported that the UK's economy is set to be the worst performer of the G20 over the next two years. What do you think of that? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I saw the, the report already. There was a graph um, on the internet a few days ago. The, the title was uh, The United Kingdom as the Sick Man of Europe, which actually was is a historic title that yes, was given is. to the Ottoman Empire uh, 100 years ago. You know, the Ottoman Empire was called the Sick Man of the Bosporus. And now we can say of the Sick Man of the Channel, you know. And uh, that's uh, uh, that, that 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 is quite uh, uh, quite a news because uh, uh, it's the outcome of of an amalgam of of, of reasons. I mean, those who who put finger to Brexit and they say, yeah, now finally, two years after Brexit, here we have uh, the problem. Uh, it didn't um, emerge as clearly as that when uh, things were put uh, were, were really shelved and written and, and signed uh, two years ago with Boris Johnson still as a as a very boyish uh, boyant. I just saying English correct. Boyant. I see it written, but um, yes. I apologize. I can't now pro- properly. Uh, Prime Minister, and here we are. We have uh, the the late repercussions of uh, Brexit. Maybe some, many people claim that this is the reasoning. I, I I'm not one of those. I would say it has to do with um, with the global recession that is there, and also with the fact that Britain is particularly hit by the energy crisis and by high energy prices because. The British were pampered over decades. They had their own oil and gas production in North Sea, Scottish oil and gas production. Uh, they were really pampered, while others had to pay already more or had to look for their gas somewhere else. Uh, the British still had uh, an important domestic uh, energy production. Now, this is seemingly gone for good. 
So uh, they they fall down from from a higher level than others. You see, when they, or I have to or, or I have to to pay higher prices in in a shorter cycle. Actually, in summer 2021. I was following this topic uh, for, for, for an article I wrote uh, in a more detailed way. And throughout June, July 2021, numerous uh, utility companies, uh, which had been founded during uh, the early years of liberalization, yes, and that's liberalized, and smaller companies closer to the customer, more competition, etc. That was the name of the game. And one after the other started to close already in summer 2021. Uh, so uh, the, the transmission grid is uh, becomes more expensive because you have to transmit your electricity over longer distances. And uh, in contrast to France, for instance, which uh, rather quickly nationalized the, the, well, the main um, uh, electricity company, EDF, Electricité de France, uh, the British are confronted with uh, many utility companies uh, which have which face many problems, uh, and so I believe the worst is still to come uh, from 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 that vantage point. And there was really a, a, a strong hectic. There was, uh, I would say, even a, a decree of. of uh, uh, how should I say? The, the, there was a degree of of earnest panic uh, in in summer 2021. Uh, so now we are one and a half year later. The global recession is there. We have had three prime ministers. We have uncertainty. Um, we have huge investors who don't really trust Britain as a as the place to be, because in the early days of Brexit, um, uh, there was, for instance, a very interesting um, foreign policy program that. Uh, was published under under Johnson, and it said uh, um, uh, "global Britain." You know, instead of Great Britain, turn into global Britain. Um, look east, look south. Um, turn British schools, British universities at the center of global education. Um, made in Britain again, being strongly supported uh, by the government. But uh, I would say all these uh, nice efforts are, are torpedoed uh, by, by realities uh, that um, maybe big investors, be they in the Gulf, uh, be they in, in somewhere in Asia, don't trust it. I mean, they, they, they don't think that this is not the right moment to go to Britain and, and bring money there. Dr. Canizo, before we go, what what do you make of uh, actually sticking with Britain? The decision by the governments there to kind of crack down on demonstrators. There have been a lot of the, of course, climate protests, but we're seeing a lot of that across Europe. What do you make of? Is this something that you see spreading across Europe, or is this pretty isolated to Britain when it comes to cracking down on protesters? We have about ninety seconds left, Dr. Canizo. Okay, yeah, why the protests? You know. Uh, there are protests a bit here and there, but I, uh, I, I think it, it has to do with very specific uh, situation in each and every country. I would, I would refrain from saying that there is now a huge protest movement. There certainly is not a protest movement that is coordinated. It's, it's popping up here and there, and in Britain for British reasons and in Germany for German reasons. <laughs> fair enough. Fair, fair enough, enough indeed. They all have their own different reasons. Yeah, that's, their own reasons. Um, yeah, um, Dr. 
Knizel, thank you for this. I'm Karin Knizel. She is a former minister of foreign affairs of Austria and energy analyst. You know, speaking of the protest thing. Thank you, Dr. Knizel. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, foreign Financial Times has come up with an article where they're talking about basically Germans are paying through the nose right here. Ordinary Germans, uh, where is it, where is it, where is it? Ordinary Germans are paying anti-war protests stretched throughout Central Europe. And they're talking about this thing where maybe not necessarily a movement per mm-hmm. se, but they're definitely seeing far more protests that are taking place right now over the issue of war, where left oh, over parties— Over the war? Oh, I thought the they war. were demonstrating like fuel prices Well, or something. in this case, it was left-wing parties and right-wing parties coming to a head or coming together. Weird. And the overlap? Yeah, there's overlap. Wow. And they're specifically saying the war. Basically wow. saying you guys are bringing Russia and Germany at odds with each other. And wow. keep in mind, though, but the um, I often wonder for stuff like this, if there was not the situation where people were getting hit by it, would they complain? Right, right. If your pocketbook wasn't hit, yeah. do would you, you care do you that war it? was no. happening? Yeah, that's the part. And why, how your government got to where they are. There. I don't yeah. think they would. You don't think they would? No. You think people Climate just— Climate activists, yes. And yeah. that's what Britain is cracking down on, those protests. Yeah. But outside of the climate activists because they're always out. Right. It's like, if we're not being affected by it, who cares? But at the point where my parking is getting hit, hey, how dare you keep that up? Um, Look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Shan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. And winging it, you have your do-rag conservative Malik Abdul, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Yeah, the Seymour Hersh thing, it's called the red line and the rat line. He could not even get that published here. He ends up having, if I'm not mistaken, in the UK, he ended up getting that published. And his argument, Seymour Hersh, look, he's the guy that wrote Reporter, the My Life Massacre. Um, he was the one that broke all of these stories. And his he's main- kind of a big deal. He's massive deal. And his main, when this story came out, people were like, whoa. Now, if it was anybody other than Seymour Hersh that released the story, they may have ignored it, but it's Seymour Hirsch. And the guy has all sorts of credibility associated with him. And he basically did this line where he was showing how chemical weapons were being transported through Turkey in order to get into the terrorist regions because Obama made the red line statement. And what at that time, I think Erdogan, I mean, I'm sorry, Assad had taken, what, 90% of his territory back. And when that didn't work in that way, still chemical weapon strike, chlorine, something that could have been table salt for all they knew, um, you also found out they basically the, there was a lot of stuff going on with that. Um, and I haven't hit the story in a very long time. Um, but fascinating stuff. Seymour Hirsch. I love the guy. Love him. Uh, but look, let's do this. Let's get into the headlines in the news. The number of people killed by 5.6 magnitude earthquake that hit um, Indonesia's, I think, I think this is Siajur Regency on Monday grew to 162. Am I pronouncing that right? Okay. Um, according to the latest report by Indonesian Press, 162 people died from Actually, the night. Update just came through. 268. Oh, jeez. That's within missing. less than an hour. That's... Well, they're clearing the rubble right now. And... Oh, I know. It's kind of like vote tally. When the vote tally comes in, it's already been taken. 268 now. People are already dead. It's just from counting them. Yeah, that's horrendous. The number of people killed by the 5.6 magnitude earthquake that hit the Indonesia's 
Singer Regency on Monday grew to 268. According to the latest report by Indonesian Press, 268 people have died in the massive quake that hit the country earlier in the day. Previously, the Indonesian Press or National Agency for Disaster Countermeasures reported that as of 1934 local time, 62 people were dead with at least 25 people still remaining under the debris. More than 2,000 houses were damaged in in that area, the agency has reported. And let's add um, last night, a huge earthquake hit the Solomon Islands, 7.3. That's a big. Oh, that's a big. One. Now that from a Californian, by California standards, that's a big a one. That's a real one. Is a serious, big, big earthquake. Two words: Victoria Newland. She was there. Victoria I mean, Newland. It's no. her fault. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tease. I don't joking. know. Uh, Caroline Kennedy. Yeah. And uh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank on her name. I could see her face, hmm. but they were just there in the Solomon Islands, yeah. you know, this summer, yeah. trying to force yeah. the commemoration Give them some freedom. of the Guadalcanal <laughs> Battle of Guadalcanal. And, you know... Keep I, those Chinese uh, people out. Keep those Chinese people out. this the island. Solomon Islands, yeah, 7.3 quake. But that's... Man. I mean, the Asian... Uh, not because they're not part of the continent, but yeah. still, the, the ring, it's part of the Ring of Fire, right, right. in the South Pacific. Oh, so, so those things happen. Um, yeah, so there's an earthquake. Seven point six is seven big, three. though. Seven, seven three. three is huge, yeah. though. Yeah. Like, I mean, we have been waiting for the big one in, in California, California yeah. for my whole entire life. Are there any deaths, damages associated with that I, one? They haven't said has it come yet. Out yet. Wow. Yeah, because it happened overnight. So, well, overnight for us. Reports are so still coming in, basically. Yeah. Takes a while, I guess. No, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but they haven't. No, I'm not. I'm not seeing reports of death yet. Seven three is a massive quake, yeah, and the Solomon huge. Islands is a very poor chain of islands. Yeah. So I can't imagine the infrastructure is going to hold up against seven point three. Yeah, that's oh. unfortunate. My heart goes out to all of those people. Um, let's keep going. According to the local media reports on Monday, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Eldridge is set to face five murder charges and five additional hate crimes in connection with the mass shooting at the LGBTQ venue on Saturday night. The shooting happened at Club Q in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where Eldridge allegedly opened fire with a long rifle and a handgun. Five people were killed, another 25 wounded in an attack, which ended when bar customers rushed Aldrich, tackling him to the ground, seized the weapons, according to local reports. Quote, I don't know exactly what I did. I just went into combat mode, unquote. One bar patron, a U.S. Army veteran, told the New York Times about his response during the attack. Quote, I just know I have to kill this guy before he kills us. Unquote. Very straightforward. That guy has a gun. That guy's killing people. I need to kill that guy to keep out of here safely. They actually didn't kill him. He actually is going to face charges. So there's that. U.S. President Joe Biden has approved an emergency declaration in the state of New York due to severe winter storm that has struck the region last week. The White House said in a statement on Monday, quote, last night, President Joseph R. Biden Jr. declared that an emergency exists in the state of New York and ordered federal assistance to supplement state and local response efforts due to emergency conditions resulting from severe winter storm and snowstorm beginning on November 18th, 2022, and continuing, unquote. The statement said, a massive snowstorm hit the western parts of New York State, particularly in the neighborhoods near Buffalo, where 77 inches of snowfall were recorded, according to local media. You used to work in this kind of, um, correct me if I'm wrong, in New Orleans with emergency response. How, How does the federal government work with that? Do they just give money? Or is it, are they sending like people on the ground? When they're when the federal government is saying, okay, we're gonna do the emergency relief and we're gonna 
give um, assistance to New York. What is the assistance in practical terms? So usually what they do, they release emergency funds or if, um, different agencies that get that are involved in the actual response yeah. relief. So they kind of give a go-ahead for them to coordinate with local groups on the ground. I so see. they're really coordinating with local groups on the ground. So they're putting resources into, into those city. groups. I see. Okay. Yeah, I always was curious about that. It's like, okay, this group is helping. It's like, okay, how exactly are they helping in practice? Is it just money or is it actual personnel? That's money, on the resources. For instance, like during the water crisis down yeah. in Jackson, the National Guard mm -hmm. was there handing out water and I stuff see. like that. So they kind of help on the ground. It's they're like, where not, can we fill in to assist right, in the process? Right, because the people on the ground are the ones who knows where the help is needed right. most. So the federal government is there to assist them. I see, I see. Excellent, excellent. Very interesting. Let's keep going. Elon Musk on Tuesday said the relaunch of Twitter's subscription-based blue service has been put on hold for an infinite period until the San Francisco-based organization has a foolproof plan or system in place to deal with the fake accounts. Quote, holding off relaunch of blue verified until there's high confidence of stopping impersonation. We'll probably use different color check for organizations than individuals, unquote, Musk wrote on Twitter. An indefinite period of time, not infinite. <laughs> the infinite thing was funny to me. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis recently inched closer to closing the gap with former President Donald Trump in regards to the 2024 presidential ticket, a new poll has revealed. Trump, who is hoping to become the first president that would ever serve um, two non-executive terms, we found that that wasn't true. Who was it? Grover Cleveland. Grover correct? Cleveland. Yeah, Grover Cleveland was the other one that basically served two non-consecutive terms. But whatever. He's polling at 46% in the Harvard Caps Harris poll. His poll number shot down about nine points since last month as a growing number of Senate Republicans turned their back on the presidential candidate, who they most likely view as too politically extreme to win the presidency for their party. But Governor Ron DeSantis, who just won the gubernatorial run for his re-election and is being eyed as a potential presidential candidate by members of his party, had his polling improved by 11 points since last month, bringing him to a 28% standing for a hypo hypothetical 2024 Republican primary. Though he is still significantly behind Trump in the poll, it underscores just how low support for Trump has fallen. Wow. So he shot up 11 points and he is still right. crawling on the floor. Right. <laughs> like, stop this. Stop yeah. this nonsense. They're like, DeSantis is going to compete with Trump. And then you look at the numbers and it's like, yeah, but he's nowhere near Trump. <laughs> This is, is it a, just wishful thinking? Yes, it I mean, because they're like, anybody but DeSantis, DeSantis. It is. It's wishful thinking based on nothing but wishful thinking. I mean, because you read this and you think, wow, DeSantis <laughs> is killing it. Then and then you, you get, get to, to the bottom. Then you get to the not so fine print. Yeah. 28%. <laughs> Yeah, that comes across as wishful thinking to me. Up until DeSantis does something um, to or get across Trump. some kind of... Or Trump. Like, if Trump collapses... Because that's possible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Trump, right? <laughs> Don't get me Yeah, wrong. it's Trump. Anything could happen. Um, let's keep going. International news. The Associated Press has fired, fired a journalist who erroneously... Um, who used erroneous information from a source to report that the missile that fell in Poland and killed two last week had allegedly been launched from Russian media reported on Tuesday. In an article dated November 15th, journalist James Laporta reported that an unnamed, quote, senior U.S. intelligence official says Russian missile crossed in a NATO member, Poland, killing two people, unquote. Though the Associated Press alert service 
through the Associated Press Alert Service, the article was picked up by numerous other media, thus raising public fears over a direct conflict between Russia and the military alliance. The next day, on November 16th, the Associated Press took down the report and replaced it with an editor's note saying that the anonymous source had been wrong and that, quote, subsequent reporting showed that the missiles were Russian-made, which is not true, most likely fired by Ukraine in defense against a Russian attack, unquote. The porter was fired following a brief investigation people at Associated Press told the Washington Post. The newspaper quoted an AP spokesperson as saying that the decision on firing staff were not, quote, based on isolated incidents, unquote, which leads to an interesting question. What were the other incidents, right? I mean, you had one job to get it right. And if you didn't necessarily get it right on a job of this magnitude, I mean, for God's sake, you're talking about something that could basically end the world. Then what were the other stories that you got it wrong on? Let's keep going. Russia was searched for the killers of the Russian prisoners of war. They must be found and punished, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said on Monday. On Friday, the Russian Defense Ministry said that the Ukrainian military had deliberately killed more than 10 captured Russian servicemen members, shooting them in the head at point-blank rage. Quote, of course, Russia was searched for those who committed the crime on its own. They must be found and punished, unquote, Peskov told reporters. Russia is ready for an international investigation into the murder of Russian prisoners of if there is hope for the probe's effectiveness. Otherwise, it makes no sense, the official added. And by the way, at this point, the New York Times has also corroborated this um, and using all sorts of, I guess, of their resources, they were able to basically validate that this indeed happened in the way that Russia is claiming it happened, which makes it that much more deplorable. And no, I do not expect an international investigation because Russian troops unfortunately. Let's keep going. Kosovar leader Albin Kurdi stated on Tuesday he decided to postpone fines for car plates with the Serbian identifier for the disputed regions at Washington's request. Quote, I think Ambassador to Kosovo Jeffrey, I think this is for his commitment and engagement. I accept his request for a 48-hour postponement on imposition of fines for illegal KM and other car plates. I'm happy to work with the United States and the EU to find a solution during the next two days. Unquote, Kurti tweeted. Tensions between Serbia and self-proclaimed Kosovo flared up over the summer when Kosovar authorities required local Serbs re-register their car's license plates. They demanded that the car plates feature the EU standard letter code RKS, Republic of Kosovo, instead of KM, the Serbian identifier for the disputed region of Kosovo, Mitrakvika. Mitraka, which provoked a major crisis. And yes, it is super petty to force them to do that, knowing full well that that is going to create a conflict. Let's keep going. The transitional government of Mali has banned the operation of non-government organizations, NGOs, funded by France. Quote, the activities of all non-governmental organizations operating in Mali and receiving funding or financial and technical support from the French are prohibited, unquote, the transitional government said in a statement on Monday evening. The decision also applies to NGOs operating in the humanitarian field. In the spring of 2022, the Malian government announced that it was terminating defense agreements with Paris and called on the country to withdraw troops from the operations Barkane and Cuba. Let's keep going. Moscow calls on Turkey to show restraint in light of the strikes on Syrian territory. Tensions cannot be allowed to escalate. Russia's special presidential envoy for Syria, Alexander Ladrinkbev, said, quote, we will call on our Turkish colleagues to show restraint in order to prevent an escalation of tension, not only in the northern and northeastern regions of Syria, but throughout the entire territory, unquote. He said at the beginning of the 19th round of talks on the Syrian settlement in Astana. 
he said work will also he he said work with all interested parties should be continued and an attempt should be made to find a peaceful solution to the Kurdish issue. Uh, this was the item that we talked with uh, Dr. Gneisel about early this morning. And I think I forget the name of the operation. It's called Operation Claude. Claude something. something. Yeah, it's an odd terminology <laughs> for I it. I saw it and I clicked off. Yeah, I saw it. yeah it's, a, it's a weird naming for it. I mean, but again, different language. But let's keep going. Um, but yeah, it's Operation Claw something. We'll come back to it. And this day in history. In 1963, U.S. President John F. Kennedy assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald while riding in an open-topped motorcade in Dallas, Texas. The magic bullet. Um, that thing. In 1969, isolation of a single gene announced by scientists at Harvard University. In 2005, Angela Merkel becomes the first female chancellor of Germany. And she dominated that position for 16 years, if I'm not mistaken. And even when you think of Germany today, I mean, man, Schultz in no way has the gravitas that Angela Merkel had in that office. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, Abdul. All right, got it that time. Operation Claw Sword. That's it, Claw Sword. That's a weird name for yeah. it. But I always love those names, though, for the operations. So like Operation Moon Knight. It's like, okay. Better, better Oper- than our hurricanes. Operation name, Hurricane. Name, name him of our hurricanes, yeah. where it's like Hurricane John. Hurricane. Well, we used to only use female names, if I'm not mistaken, and then somewhere really? along the way they changed that. Oh, you didn't know that? No. They used to only use female names. It's like Hurricane Maria, Hurricane something. Somewhere along the way they changed it, then they started to use like Andrew. Some, and, gen- some gender inclusive hurricane yes. namings. Yes. If I remember correctly. No, I mean, you're probably, I, now that I, that. Because think Probably. back to maybe five years ago. Did you ever think of any hurricanes with a male name? Or the even first 10 years one ago? that I even remember was Andrew. Right. I mean, that was what, a couple of years ago? Yeah, Hurricane Andrew. Yeah. I'm sure maybe it was others, but that's the only... They used to only use female names. If I'm not... I could be entirely wrong on this. There's sometimes you have memories of stuff Katrina. in the past. Katrina, right. That's female. Yeah. Which and people were like, they were that. like, that's so sexist. And eventually, they eventually changed it. So I use male names. Andrew was the first one I could think of that was a male. But there may be others. You didn't know that? No, because no, I'm sitting here thinking, like, who else do I know? Yeah, I can't think of any other No female, Hurricane other... Tony. No, no. Hurricane <laughs> Rich, Richard. No. Hurricane Tyrone. <laughs> Eventually, it's going to be like, we need more ethnic names. Hurricane Lee. Jamal and Malik. Right, <laughs> Hurricane Malik. Yeah, eventually, they'll get to it. It's like, this isn't fair. Where are the black hurricanes? Rashonda, Hurricane Rashonda. Yeah, listen to this. You guys listen to the fault lines. Jamal Thomas, Malik Abdul, Manila Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself on the D.C. in the D.C. area, you can always catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We will try to get to you at 945. But I want to bring in our guests. We have Kristen Ruby, president of Ruby Media, 
um, social media consultant. Crispin, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for joining us. So Elon Musk has taken over Twitter. He's been making moves. And of course, there's been all sorts of difficulties dealing with staff and everything else because Elon Musk is a bit erratic. <laughs> the staff hasn't necessarily responded all that well to that. Not to mention liberals saying, we're leaving Twitter forever, just like they were leaving um, the United States if Trump got elected. But one of the things that Musk did do well was basically removing a hashtag dealing with pedophilia. Can you get into that for me? I mean, which is rather shocking that it was even still there. Like oftentimes, like there are dog whistles that basically take place where something comes up as a hashtag that if you look at it, if you're not part of the club, you don't necessarily get it. But if you are part of the club, you're like, oh, yes, young children. Um, Give me your take on this. Why did it take so long, Twitter, to get rid of this? And why did it take Elon Musk to be the one to do it? That's a really great question. And what's really interesting in all of this is that there's actually a very long backlog as well as open litigation around issues surrounding child sexual exploitation. So if you review the current Twitter transparency reports, you'll see that the number one issue plaguing Twitter for the past several years has been the proliferation and rise of child sexual exploitation material on the platform. And one of the first things that Musk has done is actually removed uh, the hashtags that were being used to not only share and disseminate this information, but as you mentioned, um, anyone who was looking to view this information, that was their secret coded way of finding it. And there's been numerous reports of people actually working on this for years having uh, very little luck with Twitter and their head of trust and safety really making headway in this. So what's fascinating about this is that if this is all correct and Musk has made uh, headway in this, this would ideally be on, you know, the the front and center of every single news show talking about this. Here we are and almost no one is. So why is that? That is a phenomenal question. And I don't have an answer for it. I mean, like the idea that Musk takes over and is like, you know what? We need to get rid of the pedophilia stuff. And nobody's curious about it or for that matter why it was on the site for that long in the first place. That's super, super weird. Give me your explanation as to why, though. Why do you think it is? Do you think it's just because of Musk? Because he wants to open Twitter up as almost like a First Amendment site, give or take? Um, and that many liberals don't necessarily like the fact that he's doing that with the company? Well, give me your um, extrapolation as to why. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you look at people discussing, uh, if you look at people discussing this, they'll say, oh, this is just a right wing issue. No, of course it's not. The idea of or or the proliferation of child sexual exploitation is not it's not right or left. It's a bipartisan issue that has existed on almost every social media platform. The difference is uh, how are they tackling it or how are they working with law enforcement and what progress are they are they making? Um, And here you had. What was pretty stagnant, and someone came in and really turned that around. I think to answer your question, the reason that we're not seeing um, people really talking about this or giving much credit for it is because this is just so highly politicized. People either want to see him win or want to see him fail. And those that want to see him fail are not going to be talking about any success uh, metrics that he has put in place, such as removing these hashtags. And that's a really big deal. I mean, I'm the first to, to be openly uh, critical of, of some of the changes he's made and, and, and the way in which he's made them in a public way. But I have to say, if this isn't that correct and he's doing this, then, then this is a win. I mean, this is a really big deal. This is for him to come in and do this and what's taken everyone else a very long time and, and they haven't been able to do it in nearly the same level or magnitude. 
that's a big story. And that's a win for him. And, you know, the, the Christian, the interesting thing that you say you were talking about media and that they who is and who isn't covering this. So the interesting thing about m- how Musk went about this. So he initially responded to a tweet. Um, it was an article that was written by Eva Fox. And so Eva has this website. It's called the Tasmanian. And she's an she actually she is, as she describes herself, she is an automotive journalist. And so many of the topics that she covers deals with clean energy and electric vehicles, hence the Tasmanian. And so she specializes in Tesla and some other topics. Ah, that's what it's so okay. Elon Musk retweeted, she shared the article, the article that she had written about um, Elon Musk addressing the issue of child sexual exploitation. And so Elon Musk, in response to that, said priority number one. So that's what he responded to. And that is, that was on November 20. And so that was the start of it um, for Elon Musk and this whole publicized thing. But it was, seems as as Eva was actually talking about herself that what she's impressed by, what one of the potential things that could happen from this is that she believes that it, this can be expanded beyond Twitter. So in the AI universe, um, the Tesla smart car universe, she actually thinks that this could be expanded. Talking about child exploitation and how to actually deal with that online, she thinks that this is something that can be expanded even beyond Twitter. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's a that Twitter, with such the reach that it has, and now the steps it is taking under Elon, could it actually help industries outside of Twitter itself? Well, I think his leadership in this area could certainly help industries outside of this. Uh, I, I think if people see someone like an Elon Musk making this the very first priority that he's tackling, that puts a very clear line in the sand that when it comes to child sexual exploitation, he is putting children's safety first, right? And that is something that every social media company needs to do. I mean, just yesterday we saw uh, the fashion retail brand, Balenciaga, luxury retail brand. Um, they had a new advertisement campaign out and they're using, um, it featured children. And this was, again, a little bit a different topic, but it was a children holding stuffed animals who were dressed up in bondage. Ugh. And so, you know, this is just a widespread issue on so many different, uh, so many different layers. Of course, it's a, it's a little bit different than what we're talking about, but it's all part of the same. No, that's relevant. <laughs> no, no, it, it's it's because it's it's the, the issue is child explo- exploitation. And so, even though you're talking about the fashion industry, I think it's important, even in other industries, how they um, use or market children. And so, I don't think that. No, I don't think that that makes good sense at all to have children um, with teddy bears that like mimics bondage and because those are the type of things that are actually shared in the dark Twitter universe for all of those people who are into child pornography and all of that type of stuff. These are the type of images that gets them going. Exactly. And it's right out there in the open. That's the scariest part of it. Um, You know, where are the cancellations over that? Where is the outrage? Over that. Let me ask you this. How were those hashtags used on Twitter or even other social media? But since we're talking about Twitter specifically, if somebody was into that stuff, um, how did they typically share those? And how did they even find out what a hashtag was in the first place? Well, this is a, that's a, actually a really interesting question. I was looking into that because there's different rules around um, viewing that type of content. 
um, and and some some of that being illegal to do. Actually, almost all of it being illegal to do, to do versus possession of it. So what they were doing is they almost used code. Um, and I know that anyone reporting on this actually didn't even want to um, mention what those hashtags because they don't want to encourage it. Um, but they were using it as a way to say this is the type of material that I want to see, almost like an open call for that material. And then they were trying to attract other people to then post that material. Oh, so oh, okay. So they were they were starting from scratch basically. But how would they? I mean, how do you do that without bringing in people who are not on board for that? If that makes sense. Like for example, if I put out a UFO post that's very specific, um, UFO sighting. In which case, everybody's coming to see a UFO sighting. If you put out something that is somewhat of a dog whistle, how? I guess my thing is, how do you get the people to kind of latch onto the dog whistle? And I guess it's what um, haphazard in a way. Or you follow somebody who you know is already into it? I, I don't know. It's just super weird. I mean, you mean the hashtagging in general? How do they find the hashtags? For something like that. Like if I put out a UFO hashtag, very clear. Everybody knows what that is. If I'm trying to use a dog whistle, how do, like, like, like for example, racial dog whistles, often people who are, they get it. It's like mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. but on Twitter, it's not that way. You see a hashtag, the hashtag could be for something, anything. You just assume that the hashtag is, is descriptive enough for people to basically lump into it. So it's probably a group, I would imagine. And Kirsten, you may have some idea on it, but I imagine it's probably, you know, how you belong in groups. There are groups of people who like different things and there's hashtags are shared within the groups in order to find, you know, so-and-so hashtag yes or that. Because even when I did it, I was Googling. And then I said to myself, should I be Googling child pornographic hashtags. <laughs> no, because, That's creepy. Yeah, I know what you mean. Report, like you're researching it. Yeah, right? I'm actually trying to report this story, but yeah. then at the same time, am I doing anything different Illegal. than some, right. yeah. you know, other like abuser or something would do if they're trying to find the, yeah. head, you know, the porn child. Oh, porn. that's a good point. Yeah, so I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kristen. We're... I'm, <laughs> Right. That's a that's a really good point. I I also had the same exact thought when looking into some of this. But um, one thing that I will say in open um, in an open case against Twitter on this is that one attorney brought up that when they were putting in these hashtags, Twitter's algorithm was also actually amplifying it by then adding in words like "young." Whoa! Twitter was helping pedophile. Oh, that is wrong. And you can see you can see that from a. Um, because I do like Google metadata and all of that type of stuff, um, you can actually see how that can happen because you put in certain triggers, mm-hmm. certain words. So if I type in um, Jamal, then my trigger word could be Thomas, yeah. you know, or black. Or radio. Or, or radio. Yeah. So I could kind of see how that... It would happen. But Twitter itself, and I can see that more on the Google thing, but if Twitter's Twitter's algorithm is actually doing it. That that is another right, algorithm. That, well, that yes. means somebody that. programmed yeah. it to yeah. be there. Yeah, it's that's, like that's a coding thing. That yeah, that's a coding thing. I mean, because if anything, you need to put in some kind of thing of saying if young, block. if so and so, because yeah, you can block. have certain things that are blocked. Right, you can block that. So that's a coding issue for sure. Oh, that is so creepy. Creepy. Wow, creepy. Kristen, thank you for this. I really appreciate your insight on this. I'm Kristen Ruby. She's president of Ruby Media Group, a social media consultant. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. We will be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Cham, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are going to bring it on our guest, David Twill. And David, well, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm good. How about you? So far, so good. Better that you are with us. And we brought you on to have a conversation about the railroad, the basis, basically the largest freight rail unions um, split on the last vote. Now, Manila was right on this. She nailed this. And this was almost like a month or so ago. She was like, there's no way they're going to accept that contract. I was more, I don't know, hopeful <laughs> that we would Optimistic. avoid it. Optimistic is the right word for it. But right here, members of the union representing conductors and other workers voted to reject the proposed contract, um, adding additional fuel for a potential freight railroad strike that could begin as soon as December 5th the ending of the cooling off period to allow for more negotiations. The no vote adds pressure to Congress to step in and avert work stoppage that could impede coal shipments, shut down more passenger rail, imperil drinking water, and cost the economy billions per day. Not to mention, add to the inflation that we're already experiencing. Give me your take on this. What was the rationale or the reason that the um, major companies or the major unions refused to sign the contract or sign on to the agreement? Um, so th they are unhappy with the totality uh, of the offer, you know, there, there is raises uh, that are included, uh, but then there's issues about sick paid leave and, and so forth. And uh, that has, at least according to the reports, given them pause. Now, I've been involved in uh, union negotiations in the past, uh, not with railway unions, uh, but uh, in the telecommunication sector. And um, these are um, challenging discussions, to say the least. Certainly, um, in, the, in light of inflation and us heading into a recession at the same time, the previous inflation and us heading into a recession makes these types of negotiations that much harder because the union is going to ask for very serious pay raises because they believe that the you know, value of dollar has gone down. But at the same time, the railways are saying, look, we're coming into a recession here. We're certainly not going to be able to go ahead and afford, uh, you know, pay hikes going forward. And usually these are, you know, multi-year contracts that have raises built into them. And so it's very difficult to predict the future. Nevertheless, that's what the contract negotiation requires. The one last thing I'd say before allowing you to go ahead and respond is the fact that the votes are very close here. Uh, it's not like we're talking about a beatdown, uh, you know, by four of the unions of the proposals. I mean, we're talking about really, really close votes, similar, frankly, uh, to what we're seeing in politics, uh, which is razor thin margins separating, you know, the right from the left. I'm curious, what do you think the workers would need in this situation for the unions to agree to the proposal? I mean, like you said, these aren't necessarily the easiest in the world. And the Biden administration had to get involved um, in order to assist with the negotiations. How do you think this works itself out? Right here. Here's another one. Three of 12 unions participating in contract talks had already voted down the agreement. The smart SMART transportation division represents about 30 percent of the roughly 125,000 freight rail workers. I'm involved in the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and trainmen represents about 20 percent of the workers. The cooling off period expires December 4th for some of the 12 involved unions for December 8th and others. What is it that they exactly want? Like, is there anything specific that they wanted added that wasn't necessarily added in the first round of negotiations that would tip this over on their side? Like you said, it's a close vote. Let's be frank. 
Okay. It, it, regardless of, of how you couch it, it's all about more money. Right. That's what it's, right. it's about. Whether it's in the form of direct pay, whether it's in the form of the vacation days, whether it's in the form of not being able to go ahead and fire somebody and replace them with a cheaper worker. Um, you know, it's, it's all about money and it's all about solidifying their position. Um, and it could be about retirement and pension and healthcare and so forth. But all those things, it's all about dollars and cents at the end of the day. No, that's fair. Really, that's, re- that's really what it is that they want. And uh, like I said, I think we're at a particularly precarious juncture, right? If this had gotten done, Manila, to your point earlier, if this had gotten done over the summer, it would have been a lot easier than to go ahead and drive it now, right? Because in the summertime, it wasn't so clear that we were as you know embedded in recession territory as we are now. We wouldn't have been you know beaten up by rate hikes uh, from the Fed. Uh, it would have been earlier on in that process, and it would have been easier to drive it over the goal line. Now you're dealing with, frankly, a lot of people just want to get done with things because we're getting into the holiday season year end. On the one hand, so people want to just go ahead and close the books and wrap up shop and go home for the holidays. Um, and at the same time, you've got um, you know the White House having to go ahead and weigh in potentially because this is you know critical infrastructure. If, if things go south here, um, I don't believe that they will. I'm still on your side, uh, Jamal. Uh, I don't. I don't think we're going to end up getting a strike. Uh, but if, if things do go south and, and we do end up with a strike, it'll paralyze the economy in this country, uh, even for a couple of days. And again, this, this, this rings very similar to, you know, when we get uh, in Congress debates over the debt ceiling mm-hmm. and, and a government shutdown. We don't like to do things in this country until the sirens are blazing loud and the red lights are flashing only until at the point in time where it's you know, totally we're on the precipice of disaster. Do we go ahead and get things done? But I do believe that we'll go ahead and get things done. And hopefully we won't have a strike that paralyzes the economy here. And you know what? Yeah, David, one of it, I was doing some reading on it and it seems as if these negotiations have been happening for quite some time now. And you're to your point, if this was negotiated and settled this summer, it may have been easier and probably about, as I'm looking, about a $4,000 difference. Um, because initially this summer, what they were talking about was a $5,000 bonus, even with the 14.1% um, wage increase. But by the time the Joe uh, Biden's administration appointed that, um, what was that, the Presidential Emergency Board, because the Indian, the National Mediation Board wasn't able to reach negotiations. But then by the time Biden um, appointed his board, one of the things that they seemed to fall on as part of the agreement, even that they, the tentative agreement that they reached in September, the issue was over, it seemed to be severe attendance policies. Are you seeing, do you, are, are you seeing anything out there? Is that, does that still seem to be the sticking point, the attendance policy? Because I do know the um, sick leave issue was definitely one of the issues that was a huge sticking point. Right. I, I haven't seen, I haven't seen that issue come up again, at least pursuant to the reports that we've, uh, you know, taken a look at and that, that have been out there. But again, th- there are a lot of, in, 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 I can tell you this much, inside the negotiation room is uh, more nuanced than what it is that we hear and is, you know, leaked or given on a press release basis to the public. 
Um, there, there are a lot of moving parts here, and it's not as if there's one issue that's going to go ahead and get it over the goal line. If you give in a certain place and you take away in another place, you know that could be a net positive or it could end, or it could be a net negative. It really depends on you know how the other side is viewing it. So I don't think it's just one issue, although they will harp on that to the press. I think it's the totality of the package that will go ahead and get things you know done and over the goal line. That is fascinating. Yeah, Dave, talk about, go a little deeper into what this strike would mean in terms of how the general population would experience it. If this strike were to happen, they estimate it could happen somewhere between December 5th to December 9th. So roughly the first week of December, which would greatly impact Christmas, we're talking $2 billion per day if the rail workers go on strike. And like you said, Eight of 12, 12 of these unions have agreed. Um, the other ones are holding out for more, for better or whatever. But talk to us about what that looks like for the average consumer. What would we experience, I don't know, at the, the store shelves? Or what, what does that look like in practice? Okay. So in practice, I, I don't think things would go practically awry uh, and south in, inside of a week. Uh, I, I think would be okay for a week. Uh, and then after that, things would start to deteriorate pretty fast. Um, but, but, and, and let me, let me backtrack on that for a second. It's to me less about the practical and more about the perception. So the moment out that nothing's going to be shipped anywhere until the strike is over, there's going to be a couple of things that happen. First of all, there's certainly going to be a part of the population that panics, right? It's, saying, you know, there's no more baby formula, right? When we had the baby formula scarcity issue, uh, people just go out and, and, and buy stuff and hoard stuff. Um, and then the second thing, which I think is much more important relative to where the negotiations are, is a question, and I'm sure both sides are asking themselves this, is who is the American public going to paint as the bad guy in this, right? Because if it's $2 billion a day of lost commerce, right? And people aren't getting gifts for Christmas, and there's going to be shortages of, you know, necessary goods. Who exactly is going to come under fire for this? And I don't know. Neither side wants to be the bad guy here. And then it'll become a public relations war of who's going to go ahead and, you know, point the finger of the strongest at the other side on being the bad guy. And, you know, the Biden administration, I mean, that, you know, it's part and parcel of being president of the United States. You can't satisfy everybody all the time. And, okay, they'll get some heat. So this is part, you know, part and parcel of what they do. I don't know if these unions understand what the fallout might be to them. I mean, we're talking about a couple of hundred thousand people. It's not like, you know, millions of people. If you, you could you imagine, I mean, if they go ahead and they publish, you know, the addresses and names of these people that are part of these unions, what type of, you know, ruckus they'll be outside their homes and stuff like that, to the extent that they're seen as the bad guys and really, you know, shutting down our economy. I mean, it could be incredible. So I think a couple of days, it'll just be a bunch of you know, scare and, you know, a bunch of real, um, you know, concern, like we've had, you know, government shut down in the past. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I, I think it becomes a real issue after the first couple of days. And there is going to be everlasting, uh, you know, public relations nightmare 
one side or both. Well, see, I'm going to I'm going to err on the side of the rail workers and say that that the press, the 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 presentation, the narrative is going to work in their favor because historically it's kind of a Dave and David and Goliath story where you're up against the big, bad, repressive government who doesn't want to give you fair wages, fair time off to be with your family. They don't respect your safety. You're getting, you know, this disease. You're getting fingers chopped off because of safety measures. So I think in terms of, of PR, it's going to work better for the side of the unions um, because, look, when people go to the grocery store and realize it's, it's going to come to fruition to see that 30% of all packaged foods in America, and, and let's face it, Americans love our packaged foods, 30% of them come by way of rail. So even if it's, if it's a lean Christmas, like I've been saying for months, it'll be a lean Christmas if these, these workers go on strike. I think the PR narrative is going to work in the favor of the unions because um, when they can go, this comes on the heels, as you mentioned, Dave, the, the Biden's terrible, the Biden administration's terrible handling of the formula shortage that I was, you know, up on from the get-go because I, I, you know, I had a baby that was on formula. Right. So this was, you know, something that was imperative to me. And I understand uh, the fear from the moms. And when the shelves go bare, it doesn't just come back overnight, right? Things don't just get back online overnight. So I think for the, for the rail people, it'll work on in their favor that it comes on the heels that the Biden administration let babies starve without formula. And now, now your, your teenager is not going to be able to have a hamburger for lunch because mom, there's nothing at the grocery store, right? Like every, you know, the shelves are bare. 30% of it comes on rail. So I think. So I'd say, first of all, I, I, I agree with you that the, the unions will probably got, get a lot of full-throated support out of Democratic members of Congress who are right now being bombarded about what happened with Ticketmaster, Live Nation. Oh, that's such first world problems, though, <laughs> Dave. Like, oh, I can't go see Taylor Swift. Shut up. Oh, my God. But understand this. Understand this. They're getting tremendous fire in Congress over monopolies. Mm -hmm. And because there are very few railway companies, right, they have a lot of leverage over these unions, right? And so therefore, that's going to be, I think, one point where there's going to be, you know, support for the, your point that the unions will seem more sympathetic here. And then the second thing is, I can assure you one thing that we will see if there is a strike the price of diesel fuel is going to go to the moon. Oh, sure. It's frightening because if the only way to get things around is by truck, right? It would yeah. be incredible how much truck driving there is going to be. And the price of diesel, as high as it is now at five and a half dollars a gallon, is going to go, you know, spike. Well, look, they, they've already done the math about how how many truckers it would it would need to replace the rail workers on strike. And we're talking about 467,000. Now, a good friend of mine who happens to be my neighbor is a, 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 a trucker, uh, not a union, a trucker. Uh, Those came on the show? Yes, he's, he represents a trucker's union. So he's a spokesman. Yeah. And we already know there's an 80,000 trucker shortage yes. already to begin with. So if you compound what they estimate to replace the rail, 467,000, you add another 80,000 deficit of truckers that we already have, compound that with 
increased spiking prices for diesel. And shortage. Th- this is going to be a catastrophe. Yeah. And they, you know, for luckily, lucky for the Democrats that this actually has held off post midterm elections because this would have caused just, it would have flipped, I believe, the, the Senate um, as well. Going to carry over if the strike happens, will carry over into 2024 because people are not going to forget Christmas. Well, so, you know, I'm not necessarily convinced that the rail workers themselves won't be blamed. Uh-oh. Um, and, I, and I say that because we are now, if we weren't in a holiday season, maybe. But if we get to a point, and as David said, if this goes beyond a week, and people start feeling the real, the real world impact, I'm not convinced that they would not blame the rail workers. And I think in a PR campaign would matter because it depends on what's the narrative that's out there. If the narrative that's out there is that rail workers are rejecting a 14.1% you know, pay increase and many of the other things um, that are in there that they disagree with, and they disagree with things that Americans are saying, well, hey, you got your you know, we don't have food on our table. We can't get, you know, food at the stores or whatever. And you guys are complaining and you got a 14.1% increase. I'm not sure. And I compare it to the argument that what was happening around the truckers, the truckers who didn't want to get the vaccine. Well, that was a, that was a pushback against them. Largely it became political, but there was a pushback in it. I think that in a time of anxiety, people will point fingers at whomever. And I don't think that they will be as selective as they were in it. For instance, when the initial supply chain crisis happened during COVID, who did we blame? We blamed the federal government because that is the only entity that who we could blame in a case like this. Right. But in a case like this, it's just that you're striking and you don't, Americans may not necessarily understand the reason if you're striking. If you say, if they're saying, well, you got your pay increase. See, I agree with Manila on this because I, I do think when people are looking at this, well, I don't know. It, it's hard to know. And then again, who's the unions. body though? Because yeah. that's another thing. Who is, so they're negotiating with who? What, you mean the unions? Yeah, the well, unions are negotiating with, with the, the companies. Company, right, with the companies. So because they're not, if you ask Americans, well, who are they negotiating with? Well, that's with? The, also the Goliath, right? It's like yeah. these big corporations whose whose net profits have drastically that increased. Yeah. The, and that's all you but have I think to it's point out. Is, if you were saying if this is an airline, you know, most well, people don't train. understand. It's a similar difference. But I, I think <laughs> people are disconnected from the, gl- the that's, behemoth that's of the, the railway industry. All, the transport industry, the higher-ups in, in whether it's air, freight, shipping, whatever, the higher-ups they have seen their wealth increase like double digits over the over the during the pandemic. Meanwhile, worker pay has remained uh, very, very low. I think it's that part. And it has, they haven't but seen isn't their it like raises the oil, in years. the oil argument where they say, well, well, you know, oil prices, they're getting record profits while Americans are but see, suffering. The I think if you ask for, I think if you ask Americans and you say, say, let's say oil or energy, do you think it's okay for the corporations to be making that much money in lieu of the amount that you're no. paying for it? They would say no. If you ask them the same thing about, let's say, airlines, do you think it's okay that all of these people are struggling, they're working at these airlines while the company, they would say no. I nope. think the same thing's true here. Right. The workers don't even get the, you know, the cost of living increase annually, which right. has been been backed up for several years. So I think that's what it boils down to, right, yeah. Dave? I mean, at the end of the day, all they need to point out is the executives at the rail companies are making money hand over fist while these workers 
workers are not having that. They're having to work like six weeks straight. And I mean literally straight, zero days off, six weeks straight away from their homes. And let's not forget, America was built on unions, right? After the World War II, after World War II, the, the boom in the car industry, the housing industry, you saw a boom uh, with unions popping up to protect all these workers. So at the end of the day, America, modern day America was built on the back of labor and labor is still runs very deep. I mean, and, and you know, you're a Michigan, Michigan guy, right? Like, I mean, the car unions there is very strong and it has built the middle class. And I think that's still here in Americans, in, in the blood of Americans. We still feel the the pulse of how important unions are. I hear you. I, I Listen, I, first of all, I hope it doesn't come to pass that we get a strike. If we do get a strike, though, uh, it's going, as, as we've covered, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch how each side postures in order to get the narrative. Let me ask you this. What can the Biden administration do to try to avert this? I know they've been creating commissions in order to have these kind of um, the, the negotiations. But if the first two didn't necessarily work out right, what, meaning what powers does the Biden administration has its at its disposal to try to uh, mend the gap or at the very least to bring these sides together in a way that doesn't necessarily turn into calamity. The only thing the Biden administration can do is, is act as a mediator. Yeah. Not as if they can impose, they don't have the, the right to impose anything here. And so, you know, they're, they're doing the best, they're be- the best that they can to massage the situation. Because the Biden administration knows, I mean, for it, it's a double-edged sword, right? If, 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 if they leave it be and they don't get involved at all, um, and it blows up, people are going to say, hell, wh- wh- why didn't you get involved? You're the president of the United States. Maybe you could do, you know, if there's a strike, you could pull some executive order or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, if, if you do get involved and, and you fail, um, that's even worse, I think, because you tried and you couldn't get anything done. And now not only, you know, shame on these folks that couldn't get something done, you know, at the unions and at the company, but now the Biden administration is brought in and seen as, you know, essentially, a, a powerless. What about Congress? Yeah, and as I was actually, that's the point I was getting ready to make, that this is more so a congressional, this would require congressional action. the last action. time they got involved was in 1992, and right. that was during the Clinton era. Yeah. Right. And I mean, so they typically, Congress is the one that typically gets involved in railway negotiations. The only thing that the Biden administration can't, well, I won't say the only thing, but the biggest thing that they could do is when Biden co- appointed, um, created the Presidential the board. Emergency Board. Yeah. Now, that is the negotiating board. The reason that I mentioned the NMB, the NMB is the National Mediations Board, which is kind of charged with negotiating between employers and court. So the Biden administration appointing that board, that is the one thing that they can do. But what Congress can do is actually pass the recommendations of the board. Basically forcing Right. So, it. so it can, you know, Biden can't do Wait, anything. So you it. mean Congress can. OK, that's what it is. Because so I remember a, Sanders had gotten to the position of basically voting down Congress, forcing these guys to try to take the thing. Right. How can they force them? So Congress can force the unions to take the um, negotiated, negotiated position. Is that what you're saying? No. So they, if you go back and think of probably was July or August when they released kind of the breakdown of everything, right. the congressional action, because Congress has intervened in mm-hmm. the past when they haven't come to an agreement by the end of whatever cooling off period. Yeah. Congress has passed laws, and I think maybe that's what Manila is referencing. The last time that happened was in 92, it, yeah. like in the 90s. And Congress then 
got involved. I don't know what the negotiations were at the time, who was happy versus who's not. Right. But a similar thing can happen now that they can pass those recommendations. How that works, if they really don't agree, yeah. I, I don't know. But Congress definitely can act on the PMB's recommendation. Sanders got involved to vote that thing down, basically to say, yeah, we're going to let these workers mm-hmm. get, you know, what they need from it. And we're um, still here. Yeah, we're still here. We're still, <laughs> here. still having this conversation. Um, David, for a moment, piggyback on what Malik was saying for the moment. How far can Congress get involved in this? I mean, and, and even if Congress votes on it, let's say for the moment that you get a Republican Congress that votes on um, whatever the contract or whatever the agreement was. Can they force the workers to accept whatever they came up with in an agreement that they didn't necessarily want to take on the first time around? So it, 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 it's not like I, I don't know how fast it can happen. I don't know the timetable. So, for instance, when it comes to other labor negotiation it, and you, you don't get to an agreement uh, and both sides have gone ahead and negotiated in good faith, it then goes to the National Labor Relations Board. And there's a and there's a couple of step process. There's a regional NL NLRB, and then there is um, uh, the the nationwide NLRB uh, if it gets you know so to say appealed. And so it it can take time. And throughout that period of time, that's that's what the you know the the, the unions vote on when they vote to strike is that they can go ahead and strike to the extent that they have not reached an agreement, right? And there is going to be an appeal to the NLRB. And then during that period of time, the strike can go ahead and be carried out. It's 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 interesting. It's like a, you know a court case in the sense that um, you know it takes time to wind through. You know there there's a panel that needs to go ahead and review it, and then go ahead and decide whether each party has negotiated in good faith and whether the proposal that was given last, um, you know, by industry in this case the railways, um, you know, was fair, and therefore wasn't accepted. And then they could go ahead and impose it. Now, that begs the question of practicality, which is all the while that this thing, you know, is winding its way through some sort of process to decide whether it was done properly and therefore it can be imposed on unions, the world could blow up in the midst right, of it because we, have, we will have no railway service, right? So really, at the end of the day, giving me the adjudication of what, in fact, people did in the negotiation, you know, months ago doesn't really matter at the end of the day because all hell ensued in the interim because of the strike. Yeah. So sometimes that's kind of the rub to these situations. David, we're going to have to close it. Really appreciate you joining us. David Tewill is coach, co-founder of ProChain Capital, a multi-strategy crypto asset fund covering the entire ecosystem of the burgeoning asset class with deep experience. Crypto assets, token mining, venture capital, programming, thought lines. Thomas, Chan, Malik, back in a moment. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. And winging it, it is the do-rag conservative Malik Abdul, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I like that. That works. 
Yeah, that works. And yes, um, I am freezing. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I can get you my sweater. I, I, I always keep one. I'm putting on my parka inside a studio. But studios are generally kept cold for, oh, you know, are they? for yeah, for you know, people that aren't aware. Yeah. Um, every radio station I've ever worked at, every TV station I've ever worked at. It's been chilly. Because, yeah, because the equipment. You don't want it too warm and comfortable. Well, no, it's not that. <laughs> it's, it's usually for the equipment. So the equipment oh, I see. doesn't, like, get and warm lights, and Because yeah, yeah, yeah. imagine the heat from the lights and everything. Yeah, that so that is they true. try to balance the air and it's like, for me, I, f- as most women do, we're like, yeah, it's cold It's not just you. Yeah, oh, it's it's cold. It is chilly in here. But yeah, let's hope we don't have a strike. That I, would be disastrous, mm-hmm. to put I it mildly. I hope not, but I, I still think it's going to happen. I still think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen, but we'll see. But And just to give a heads up, David Twill, he's co-founder of ProChain Capital, multi-strategy crypto asset fund covering the entire ecosystem of the burgeoning asset class with deep experience in crypto assets, token mining, venture capital, programming, and asset management. David has managed hedge funds for more than 10 years, and he's earned a JD degree from the University of Michigan Law School. I tried to run through that at the very end, but it's like, you're, you're moving so fast. Uh, but look, let's get into headlines. Which, yep, I can actually start. Just, uh, I don't think we have another update right now. On the death toll. Yes. But but, we expect it to climb in Indonesia. Yeah, by tomorrow we'll be reporting a different number for sure because they have to, this is the recovery phase. But our main story, the number of people killed in a 5.6 magnitude earthquake that hit Indonesia's Sianjur Regency on Monday grew to... 278 people. According to the latest report by Indonesian Press, 268 people died from the massive quake that hit the country earlier in the day. Previously, the Indonesia National Agency for Disaster Countermeasures reported that as of 7.34 local time, 62 people were dead with at least 25 people still remaining under debris. Again, we expect that number to grow. More than 2,000 houses were damaged in the Sienger Regency, the agency also added. And in domestic news, according to local media reports on Monday, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldridge is set to face five murder charges and five additional hate crime charges in connection with a mass shooting at an LGBTQ venue on Saturday night. The shooting happened at Club Q in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where Aldrich allegedly opened fire with a long rifle and a handgun. Five people were killed and another 25 wounded in the attack, which ended when bar customers rushed Aldrich, tackling him to the ground and seized his weapon. These are according to reports, quoting, I don't know exactly what I did. I just went into combat mode. One bar, patron, a U.S. Army veteran, told the New York Times about his response during the attack. He goes on to say, I just know I have to kill this guy before he kills us. If you can imagine the, the mood in that place and thank goodness for our U.S. Army veterans and others who were there to assist because it could have been much, much worse. U.S. President Joe Biden has approved an emergency declaration in the state of New York due to a severe winter storm that struck the region last week, the White House said in a statement on Monday. Quoting, last night, President Joseph R., that is Joseph Robinette Biden, Jr. declared that an emergency exists in the state of New York and ordered federal assistance to supplement state and local response efforts 
due to the emergency conditions resulting from a severe winter storm and a snowstorm beginning on November 18, 2022 and continuing, the statement said. A massive snowstorm, as you may know, hit the western parts of New York State, particularly in neighborhoods near Buffalo, where 77 inches of snowfall were recorded. This is according to local media. More domestic news. Elon Musk on Tuesday said that the relaunch of Twitter's subscription-based blue service has been put on hold. He's putting the brakes on it for an indefinite period of time until the San Francisco-based organization has a foolproof system in place to deal with those fake accounts. Holding off relaunch of Blue Verified until there is high confidence of stopping impersonation. We'll probably use different color check for organizations than individuals. Musk wrote on Twitter. Yeah, bro, you probably need to figure that stuff out before you start launching new initiatives at the at the company. But who am I? I'm not a billionaire by any stretch of the imagination. Florida's Republican governor and who seems to be conservative's favorite governor, Ron DeSantis, recently inched closer to closing the gap with former U.S. President Donald Trump in regards to the 2024 presidential ticket a new poll has revealed. Trump, who is hoping to become the second president that who will ever serve two non-consecutive terms, is polling at 46%. In a new Harvard caps Harris poll, his poll number shot down more than about nine points since last month as a growing number of Senate Republicans turned their back on the presidential candidate who they most likely view as too politically extreme to win the presidency for their party. But good old governor Ron DeSantis, who just won his gubernatorial run for re-election and is being eyed as the potential presidential candidate and heir apparent, to the Republican Party's nomination in 2024 had his polling improved by 11 points since last month, bringing him to a whopping 28% standing for a hypothetical 2024 Republican primary matchup. Though, the fine print at the bottom says he is still significantly behind Trump in the poll and it underscores how low support for Trump has actually fallen. And in international news, the AP Associated Press has fired. You are fired. A journalist who used erroneous information from a source to report that the missile that fell in Poland and killed two last week had allegedly been launched by Russia. It's, you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) The reporter is out of there. Mr. Laporta, in an article dated November 15th, journalist James Laporta reported that an unnamed senior U.S. intelligence official says Russian missiles missiles crossed into NATO member Poland, killing two people through AP's alert service. The article was picked up by numerous other media, thus raising public fear over a direct conflict between Russia and military alliance. The next day on November 16th, The AP took down the report and replaced it with an editor's note saying that the anonymous source had been wrong and that subsequent reporting showed that the missiles were Russian-made 
and most likely fire by Ukraine in defense against a Russian attack. Laporta was fired. Following a brief investigation, people at the AP told The Washington Post, the newspaper quoted an AP spokesperson saying that the decisions on firing staff were not based on isolated incidents. So the question is, has he done this before? But keep in mind, just so our um, listeners and viewers will know, the reason that this is so significant because the AP pretty much serves as a newswire for other outlets. It is the, as Elon Musk is trying to do at Twitter, it is the blue check of blue checks when it comes to reporting for other, I'm covering as a wire service for other outlets. So if AP reports it, it could be anywhere from the Washington Post to Fox News to CNN, MSNBC, everyone is going to report the same thing because they say AP is a trusted source. But apparently, Mr. Laporta and his senior U.S. intelligence official was not true. More international news. Russia will search for the killers of Russian prisoners of war. They must be found and punished. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said on Monday, on Friday, the Russian Defense Ministry said that the Ukrainian military had deliberately killed more than 10 captured Russian servicemen, shooting them in the head at point-blank range. Quoting, of course, Russia will search for those who committed this crime. On its own, they must be found and punished, Peskov told reporters. Russia is ready for an international investigation into the murder of Russian prisoners. Uh, if there is hope for the probe's effectiveness, otherwise, it makes no sense. The official added. More international news. Kosovar leader Albin Kurti. Kurti stated on Tuesday he decided to postpone fines for car plates with the Serbian identifier for the disputed region at Washington's request. I, U.S. Ambassador to Kosovo, Jeffrey Hovinier, for his commitment and engagement, I accept his request for a 48-hour postponement on imposition of fines for illegal KM and other car plates. I am happy to work with the U.S. and the EU to find a solution during the next two days, Kurti tweeted. Tensions between Serbia and the self-proclaimed Kosovo flared up over the summer when the Kosovar authorities required that local Serbs re-register their cars' license plates. They demanded that the car plates feature the EU standard letter code of RKS, which is the Republic of Kosovo. Instead of KM, the Serbian identifier for the disputed region of Kosovska Mitrovica, which prompted a major, provoked, I'm sorry, a major crisis. More international news, the transitional government of Mali has banned the operation of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, funded by France. The activities, I'm quoting here, of all non-governmental organizations operating in Mali and receiving funding or financial or technical support from France are prohibited. The transitional government said in a statement on Monday evening, the decision also applies to NGOs operating in the humanitarian field. It's worth noting that in the spring of 2022, the Malian government announced that it was terminating defense agreements with 
Harris and called on the country to withdraw troops in their operations Barcane and Takuba. Moscow calls on Turkey to show restraint in light of the strikes on Syrian territory. Tensions cannot be allowed to escalate Russia's special presidential envoy for Syria, Alexander Lavrentiev said. Lavrentiev said, We will call on our Turkish colleagues to show certain restraint in order to prevent an escalation of tensions, not only in the northern and northeastern regions of Syria, but throughout the entire territory. The official said at the beginning of the 19th round of talks, on the Syrian settlement in Astana. He said work with all interested parties should be continued and an attempt should be made to find a peaceful solution to the Kurdish issue. And on this day in history, 1963, U.S. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald while riding in an open-top motorcade in Dallas, Texas. In 1969, isolation of single gene announced by scientists at Harvard University. And in 2005, Angela Merkel becomes the first female chancellor of Germany. And those are your headlines for today, November 22nd. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right, right on. We hit it on time today. So let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to have a conversation about special counsel um, that was basically appointed to cover the investigations for Donald Trump, Mar-a-Lago, in January 6th. Let's get into it. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Thomas. Chan. Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Jamaral Thomas, as well as Malik Abdul. Time to bring now our next guest, Mr. Ted Harvey. Now, Ted is a former state senator for the great state of Colorado. Ted is also the chairman of StopJoe.com. So I think we have a whole <laughs> lot of stuff to talk about. Hi, Ted. It's so good to speak with you. I haven't seen you in a very long time. I am so sorry to hear about this devastating shooting about uh, at the, the Q nightclub in, in Colorado Springs. Any thoughts on that? Well, it's horrific. Um, Colorado Springs is my hometown. It's where I grew up. It's uh, a devastating fact that there is evil in this world, and um, we need to be vigilant wherever we go. Yeah, it just happens. It can just happen anywhere. I mean, Christmas parade, right? I mean, just that's such a sad thing right before the holidays. But, uh, you know, that, that obviously brings up a whole lot of the gun debate that's happening right now. And, uh, I mean, that's not, you know, obviously we didn't expect something like this to happen. So that wasn't something we were going to talk to you about. But since you're a Colorado guy, you know, it makes sense to to ask you what people are saying on the ground. Well, um, I, I think this, the biggest deal in, in Colorado Springs is everybody's in shock. I think that uh, the, the politicians are using it for their own agenda, which is typical in situations like this. But I think for the most part, everybody in Colorado is in shock and they are horrified that this could happen, and um, especially in the holidays. And our prayers go out to the victims and their families. 
That is appalling. I mean, I, I saw that shooting and it put you in the mind of the other nightclub shooting that took place. I Pulse, forget, Pulse yeah. in Florida? Yeah, that one where all those people basically died. In this case, somebody basically tackled um, the perpetrator who made it out alive, oddly yeah. enough. I mean, shockingly, right? Considering um, that he was out there killing people. Um, but yeah, that it, it's horrible to put it mildly. Um, Ted, let's get into the conversation about Trump. And so right here, right here. So they, ah, I lost my, lost my page. Here we are. Um, this is Merrick Garland. Quote, based on recent developments, including the former president's um, announcement that he is candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be candidate as well. I have concluded that it is in a public interest to appoint a special counselor. This was Merrick Garland. He basically said this on Friday. Now, the person he chose was Jack Smith. He's a former prosecutor, even working um, in Hague in many respects. And I do mean that from the standpoint of the actual Hague. Give me your take on this. The fact that he's appointed a special prosecutor. I guess first question, do you agree with the appointment of a special prosecutor? Well, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Um, I, I think that the Justice Department has been weaponized to go after the Democrat Party's enemies, whether it is parents going to a school board meeting or whether it is going after Trump. And they have been going after Trump for seven years. And uh, this should not surprise anybody that they are continuing to go after him because, because they're scared to death of him regaining power and going after the government state and um, d dismantling the Washington, D.C. bureaucracy. Um, but having said that, I'm always hesitant to, um, to question um, any legal proceedings because I am a law and order person and I believe that um, the truth will eventually win out. And so um, I think it might be best in, in a situation like this where you have such a compromised Justice Department to have somebody from the outside looking at the information. But in the Mueller investigation, he knew on day one that there was no Russia collusion, that it was actually the FBI that was working with the, F, working with the Russians to try to frame Trump. And the Mueller investigation continued on for two years going into the 20. 18 election, which put a shadow over the Republicans and the Trump administration for two years and resulted in Nancy Pelosi becoming the Speaker of the House. So am I, am I 100 percent um, believing that simply giving it to an outside counsel outside of the, the bias and uh, Justice Department is going to bring um, um, actual justice to the American people and to Donald Trump? Um, I, I can't put my faith in, in the federal government anymore. And that's, and that's actually a very good point. Um, the thing about it in, you know, I've listened to people much smarter than me, um, people who I don't always agree with and some that I do. And it seems as if that appointing the special counsel makes sense. What none of them, and when I say none of them, I mean people on both sides of the political aisle they haven't been able to, but there's always a caveat. And that but is, but we don't understand why he didn't do the same thing when it comes to Hunter Biden. And Interesting. that is because Interesting you, point. and I'm, I'm so glad that you read Garland's Statement. charge, yeah. if you will, because he said, because both people are running, essentially, both people are running for president. Right. Um, Joe I'm Biden appointed to, me. Right. I'm going to remove myself just because, you know, so there's no issue with bias or anything. 
But he didn't do that with Hunter Biden. And so none of them can explain, other than for political reasons, how you can justify naming a special counsel because they're running both the same two people are running for president, but you weren't able to do it when it comes to his son. And so, Ted, do you do you have a better explanation? Because the legal the legal people minds that I've listened to on this can't explain why he didn't do the same when it comes to Hunter Biden. Because the FBI and the intelligence community has already told the world that the Hunter Biden story is simply Russian propaganda. End of story. I appoint a special counsel for Russian propaganda. That's an easy answer. <laughs> yeah. The, the FBI had a backdoor to Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms where they could go in and cancel, censor the federal government, censoring anybody who mentioned the Hunter Biden laptop. Um, they, they have all authority to deem what is um, propaganda and what is crime and, and our our federal government has decided that uh, the Hunter Biden laptop is irrelevant. Let me ask you this about the investigations themselves. Well, actually, I, let me let me respond to that, Ted. I, I don't think um, they, they know it's irrelevant. I think they knew how punitive it could be. No, it is. Not it could be. It is. The, 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 the Biden family has put our national security at complete risk by trying to ingratiate themselves and take money from Ukraine, the corrupt Ukrainian government, and take money from one of our biggest enemies on the face of the earth, which is China. And our intelligence community worked in tandem with the Democrat Party and the, and the, and the mainstream media to spike a story that would have completely affected the 2020 election. And they tried, to, which by, by result is they interfered in the election of the president of the United States and tried to overthrow the will of the American people when they work for us, not the other way around. And they are completely corrupt in the way they handled this. And everybody should never let them forget that. That I agree with you on. Yeah, that I agree with you on. Because Look, the Hillary Clinton thing, right? They, her emails, they thought that might have had something to do with her losing that I mean, race. She's, she's the original election denier, right? Yeah. So when you hear about the left crying that, oh, the right, they're a bunch of election deniers. They don't, you know, Carrie Lake won't won't concede. Well, you know what? You know who started that trend for to tell America not to believe election results? Hillary Clinton. It was it was Russia. It was white women doing what their husbands wanted them to do. <laughs> Blacks Sexism, not being sufficiently loyal. Blacks not oh, being sufficient. Yeah. So there was a number of reasons, in addition to Russia collusion, why she, why Hillary Clinton lost. So no surprises for me on there. One, Ted, what do you think about this? Idea? She's walking the streets free, um, even though she allowed thousands of compromising emails to be sent out to anybody who wanted them, including our enemies. My brother has a, worked for the federal government for 35 years. He has as high of a national security clearance as Hillary Clinton ever did. And I can assure you, if he would have let one email get out, <laughs> classified, he would have been fired. If he would have let three get out, he would have been put in jail. Hillary Clinton let thousands of emails that were classified get out to our enemies and she's still walking the streets. There is 
without a doubt, a two-tiered system of justice in this country. And if you are not part of the powerful political elite, then um, you're screwed if you if you do something illegal, but the rest of them can walk around the streets free. And I think that's the problem in our country right now. And do you know what what I think is going to happen? Because just last week, um, and I read it when I came in on Friday, there was a report that came out in the Washington Post talking about how insiders now believe that Donald Trump was motivated by ego, that he wasn't uh, motivated by any business interests or personal interests, that it was an ego in a debate over him thinking that documents belonged, rightfully belonged to him, that maybe didn't. So what did we find out over, what was that? Was it the same day? Yeah, I believe it was the same day. Then we had Garland's announcement. On Friday, oh, I see. saying that the announcement of a special counsel, he says that it was in response to Trump. What I think is going to happen, they're not going to be able to touch Donald Trump on anything around January 6th. Um, the DOJ may try to go after people who were behind this elector scheme. I think what's going to happen is, is that the DOJ is going to prosecute someone around Donald Trump on the issue of certifying that there were no more classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. That's the interesting part. I don't think they're going to get. I think they. You know don't think they're going to get Trump. That, I don't. I think they know that they're not going to get Donald Trump. But for them, a win would be prosecuting someone around, around him. him. In the same way, they didn't prosecute Trump for anything on Russia. Right. It was Manafort. Yeah. It was um Flynn, know, the general Flynn. Was, yeah. You know there was Stone. Mm-hmm. It was people around him. And it wasn't Trump himself, but they're going to be able to tag this. Is This is what happens with Trump world. I think they're going to be, if they get them on anything, it's going to be, and I think the person who certified it was Christina Bob, former anchor at OAN. I think they may try to go after the person who certified it. And I could see that. But yes, because that would be a crime. That would be a crime. I guess my thing is, whether or not, go after it. I mean. Well, whether or not Trump was keeping these documents for posterity, whether or not he was trying to write a book, whether or not he thought those documents were his, it's still illegal, right? I mean, and is, I guess my thing is, is Trump culpable for it? I mean, Ted, go for it. Legal about it. What's illegal about the president keeping, or the former president keeping documents that he wasn't supposed to have access to that was classified documents? Well, it depends on what the documents were. Right. So he, he does have access to keeping classified records, Initially, what we were told is that the missile debate, secrets, you know, <laughs> stuff that, like yeah, that. We yeah. were told that it was, you know, nuclear codes yeah. or something like that. When remember, at the very beginning, it was a question on the Presidential Records Act and what a presidential president can and cannot keep. He can keep classified documents, but remember there was that discussion of did he de- declassify any? Right. Like we still don't know the. Yeah, answer. we still don't know the fact that we don't know the answer to. Trump, there should be a document or somebody saying Trump issued a full, like, we still don't have that. Right. And it's like November. But I guess my point is, if Donald Trump didn't declassify, which I don't believe right. for a moment he declassified I, those I documents. In his brain. Either. In his brain, maybe. <laughs> All right. But if he didn't. Legal for Trump to have the documents. What documents did he have that, that, that was criminal? Well, right. I guess that's the point, though. That's why the special prosecutor well, is being real. Every inactivated. president leaves with. Something. Because that's yeah. the Hillary Clinton point. Exactly. So if, if it's prosecutable, I mean, so I guess Look, if it's a I crime, she should have been prosecuted over that. Wait, wait, go ahead, Ted. Go ahead, yeah. Ted. I hear Ted trying to get in. You can't just blatantly put out there that what he, that what he did was illegal because you don't know that that's the case. 
I never said what Trump did was illegal. I'm asking, I'm making the point that the special prosecutor in and of itself was appointed in order to determine whether what Trump did was illegal. Hence the original question, is it right that he appointed a prosecutor? Do you agree with the premise? Uh, again, I think that the Justice Department is so biased and so corrupt that the, the American people can't trust it. It's been proven that it can't be trusted, going back to Hillary Clinton and going back to the seven years of their investigation of, of Trump and trying to destroy his administration. I think they are so biased and, and so um, corrupt that there's, there, we, we cannot trust that this is not pol- simply political bias, going after a president because uh, a president because they are having a fight over who has custody to some documents. We're having a special counsel to look into whether Donald Trump should have the documents or whether the national director of the National Archives should have the documents. And, and we're going to we're going to um, have a political witch hunt over something like that and, and, and try to interfere in another election. I, I think that is fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't fool me the first time around. What do you think of the, the idea of them? maybe getting someone, maybe the person who certified that there were no classified documents, that them actually indicting that person. Do you think that that's a possibility? Because I don't think they're going to, if you don't think that Trump is culpable or have any responsibility, do you think that they'll be able to get the person who certified that there were no classified documents? You look at, at, at the Mueller investigation, Manafort was arrested for something that he did 20 years before um, he ever worked for Donald Trump. You look at Roger Stone, he was arrested in, in the middle of the night with full right um, 20 SWAT FBI officers raiding his house because he lied to Congress. Um, he, he didn't do anything illegal in his um, work with the Trump administration or with the candidate Trump. Um, so do I think that the government will do anything they can to put a skin on the wall? Sure. Um, and um, they will find a technicality for anything they can to say it was worth the, however, tens of millions of dollars they're going to put into another investigation of Donald Trump. Yeah, and that's, and that's a very good point. I, I think that they... Because of the Russia, uh, what what happened with the Russia investigation and how it was a dud when it came to when it came to Donald Trump, I think they're they they feel compelled that if they launch into a special counsel investigation, that they have to do something. And so I think I do think that the bare minimum something yeah. is to say, uh oh, that person who now for most people I would imagine they would say what. This is what you decide to get someone on. But Democrats and the media will be able to use this as yet another example of the corrupt yeah. people around. Essentially, Donald Trump lied. That's, that's how they did it Manifor. would be. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's how exactly it would be. That's exactly what they had nothing to do with the presidential election. And they acted as if everybody right. that they captured with these, you know, this crime or that crime was somehow related to Trump and his particular entourage. It was nonsense. Jamal, so do you ask you this? And Ted, you can answer this as well. If they go at, if they indict someone, let's say they indict someone, the person who certified right. the documents. Who should have never certified them. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. well, probably shouldn't be out there, down there, but that's another discussion. Yeah. Do you think, does Donald Trump then become a martyr? 
Modder is too strong. That's a good spin. Yeah. I mean, he <laughs> might look, that's what he's going to argue. Oh, I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you the, the fact that they have gone after Donald Trump with the Mueller investigation they went after Donald Trump with the Ukraine impeachment. The fact they went after Donald Trump with the January 6th impeachment. Um, he is already a martyr. There is a reason why there are tens of millions of Trump supporter, MAGA supporters that will walk on glass to get him to be reelected. He can um, justify everything that has happened. That I'm telling you, he is already a martyr to tens of millions of people, and they're going to work their butts off to push it back against these the the the, um, the deep state, if you will, that has trying to tra- been trying to bring him down for seven years. I can't say I entirely disagree with you from the standpoint of his supporters. I mean, like if you think about it. The, the language that Donald Trump is using is this is a witch hunt. They've come after me. And then you look at the Trump and, and Russia stuff. Yeah, like- <laughs> right. The Trump and Russia stuff. Yeah, that was a witch hunt. The first impeachment was nonsense. We the- heard about Trump literally 24-7 wall-to-wall people. That's right. People at CNN, young starter reporters, mm-hmm. like green, wet-behind-the-ears mm-hmm. reporters, you know, because they careers were they, lost. Careers That's were right. made That's on the right. backs of of you know uh, a verbal lynching to Donald Trump. And by the way, getting it wrong often. And they were wrong. Getting right? it wrong often, but it I doesn't re- matter. They were bombastic, was, and that's what sold. And then their careers, as Malik said, launched. they became a somebody. I remember CNN ran this report where the only thing they needed to do was read the letter, and they didn't even get it right. And they had to come back and says, "Okay, our bad. Trump didn't do this, etc." And I'm like. You just needed to read the letter. Like, you were that excited. Read words. Yeah, it was like, oh, we got Trump this stuff. Oh, I'm sorry, we don't. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, meaning, I used to get into these arguments with some of the Democrats. I used to work at another radio station. Work was too strong. I used to just um, do it, um, thing. All of those guys were Democrats. And we used to get into these arguments where they were like, I mean, from their standpoint, liberals, they believe that stuff. Even now, they believe yes, that stuff. I still see. I still see Russia collusion hashtags all shocking. over Twitter. Yeah. because once the cat's out of the bag, the toothpaste is out, out of the <laughs> tube. You cannot put it back in. So there is a huge contingent of American people, yes. American voters, who still to this day believe Russia yep. interfered in the 2016 elections to get Donald Trump elected. Totally hooey. Yeah, it's nonsense. And so, yeah, the witch hunt stuff has some legitimacy. Second impeachment, I think the second impeachment is fair game. The first one, I think, was nonsense. But I think the fact that they went through the first one gets across that these guys were looking for anything, anything at all, in order to basically hook Trump. Yeah, but wasn't the second one based on the Ukraine phone call, allegedly? No, the second one was based on the, basically, the run on the Capitol. The first one was based on the Ukraine phone call. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. And then the second one yeah, was because Elizabeth, I remember Elizabeth Warren was like, well, we're going to wait and see. It's like, wait and see for what? You guys have already revved up an impeachment right. thing over this nonsense. But let, let's go back to the Ukraine phone call thing. Because, yeah. I mean, Ted Ted mentioned Ukraine earlier as well. And by the I way, mean, Joe Biden. Funneling and, money through there. Right. Joe Biden's son was sitting on the board of Burisma. But even there before that. emails Joe, that prove it. Joe Biden like, making that argument, talking about. What did he say? I told him to fire that prosecutor and I was right. holding a billion dollars over the head. Mm-hmm. It's like, how are you going after Trump when it's Biden on is on video, video bragging right. about this? And, and all Trump did. And, and sure, maybe I sound like I'm coming to his defense on this. But yeah, because all Trump did was say, hey, I might have to withhold some of this aid that right. we're going to send you until you investigate and, and fix the corruption that's happening over there. And yes, 
on the, you know, if you just break it down, you might say, okay, that's quid pro quo. However, was he wrong to say that? We do that every day with foreign aid. We say, you, you need to, when Bill Clinton was president of the United States, to his credit, he went to Vietnam and he set out all of these different things. You have to give the land back to the farmers. You have to give them appropriate pay for their day's work. And if you do that, we're going to allow you into the world banking system. Pro quo. Yes. What we tell you to do and, and we'll allow you into the mainstream society. Clean up your corrupt government and we'll help you um, uh, with, with, with federal aid funding. That's not corruption. That's not quid pro quo. That's telling us, telling another country, if you want our money, clean your, 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 your own. Your act up. Yeah, your own act up. And, and I do hope, you know, it's, media deserves to be criticized a lot. I don't expect any of this to change now that Donald Trump has announced, you know, I, they're, they're, they're um, ginning up a fight between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Personally, I don't see, I would love to see how Ron DeSantis responds to a, to national incoming. And I don't mean just the stuff that he's given, because for my purposes, Donald Trump has proven himself as a fighter and a puncher, and a counterpuncher, and from Ron DeSantis' perspective, I don't think that he's shown that on a national scale. These type of stories help Donald Trump. I don't know how that, it, it doesn't benefit DeSantis. We were, yeah. um, in our headlines, we were reading a poll how Ron... 28%. They're like, DeSantis is a screaming 28% challenging Donald Trump, Big Papa. Um... Yeah, I don't see it. He's rocking it. Yeah, he's rocking it. He's totally going up. Ted, get into that for me. This weird way that media is trying to gin up DeSantis in order to be a, a, a I don't know what you call it, a hit Trump in the knees or something like that. But it doesn't entirely make sense because like Malik said, it doesn't necessarily seem like there's a real challenge here if you're looking at the polling in the Republican Party, short of Florida, maybe. Again, <laughs> they have created a martyr out of Trump and his tens of millions of supporters aren't going anywhere. They're going to continue to walk on glass, work their butts off, to do everything they can to make sure that he is the nominee for the Republican Party. And DeSantis knows that, and DeSantis isn't going to get into the middle of that fray because he has an exceptional political career ahead of him. So why would he want to try to kill the king if he can't kill him? So you don't think he's going to run? That's what I was going to ask you. You don't think that? No. You don't think he's going to run either? Oh, oh. we're going to put money on that. I think DeSantis is going to run. Because, because you know, they say strike while the fire is hot. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if he'll have a redo. Yeah. Well, the iron's hot. Yeah. I don't know if he can have a 2028 redo. Well, look, I mean, will the he be as it's as interesting in 2028? The, the political establishment right now is cheering on Ron DeSantis, but I don't think the MAGA crowd is done, and there are 75 oh, million voters done. out there that yeah. are clearly still staunchly in the Trump camp. And I think DeSantis knows the writing is on the wall. Will he flirt with the idea and get some super PAC money? Absolutely he will. He'd be a fool not to. Yeah. But 28% out of 80 million Republican voters, that's... I don't, I don't see how he Manila. runs away from the lure. They're going to be throwing money hand over foot yes. at Ron DeSantis. They're going to... He's the answer. You're the one that we need. Nobody else can yep. do it but you. We need somebody to stop Trump. I Trump don't is see too divisive. How Ron DeSantis yep. does not say, okay, yeah. I'm in. 
Because there's already a divide. Yeah. And personally, I would like to see someone explain to me for any of those who supports DeSantis, this is about a ground game, a numbers game. Yeah. Show me how DeSantis wins the Iowa caucus, New Hampshire caucus. Show me how DeSantis even gets to South Carolina. Because that's the first big state in South Carolina. What's the road? Hearing us discuss this little portion here on DeSantis, I mean, I'm with you, right, that I don't believe... DeSantis would would go for it, go for the jugular at this juncture. I think it's a little bit premature. I think he'll probably get some money out of it and, you know, see where the wind is blowing. But at the end of, of the day, he has to know that he was running on the whole MAGA philosophy to begin with. And he can't steal that away from the man who's still alive and running for it again. He's already announced. Right. Um, yeah. I, I- the, the, I mean, that's why Trump announced is to is to stop that that momentum in its tracks. And um, I, I I agree. Um, DeSantis can count and look at where the polls are, and he can say, "I can't beat that." And I I don't I don't think he's dumb. I think he's one of the most brilliant politicians we've seen in in decades. A very popular governor of Florida, and he will be the anointed one going into 2028. Nobody will even run against him if he if he doesn't run this time around. I think yeah, so too. I don't. I, I mean, don't think that. I don't think. I don't think the the lane is cleared for somebody from the establishment at this point. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Ted. I mean, I think the the American people, I think at this point, are getting really sick and tired of establishment. And whether or not you like Trump, he's still, even though he's a, he he. He's not quite an incumbent, but still, he's a former president. Oh, he's, he's running still, as an incumbent. But he's, he's still an outsider. An outsider he's incumbent. Still, it's weird. It's <laughs> but, very weird. But it he works, is not, oddly he's enough, not in a weird way. But, he is but not but establishment. It's the establishment, though. But he is, and DeSantis is backed by the establishment. I mean, what do you think, Ted? Do Are, are the American voters, this next go-round, for left side or right side, red team or blue team, do they want an establishment candidate? Absolutely not. Like, like I've been saying since the beginning of this, they have looked at what the establishment and, and the intelligence community has tried to do to Donald Trump for the last seven years, and they are sick and tired of what's going on in Washington, D.C., and that's why they are so solidly in Trump's um, campaign. And to, to go back to DeSantis, DeSantis wants that very same mantle. He wants to be seen as the, the, the next MAGA candidate to t- and to take all of that momentum with him. If he gets into this race, he will be the antithesis of MAGA, and he will be looked at as the establishment tool, and it will go against everything he is, the, the narrative that he's tried to build up for the last four years, and he won't do it. He won't put himself in that situation. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I just think that DeSantis, I, I, I'm not as impressed with DeSantis, so I don't think that he's politically savvy enough to be able to turn down millions and millions of dollars and people screaming to him. I mean, look how, from my perspective, look how how he's performed with all of this adoration. Yeah. He loves it, even though for me, he's kind of like an well, average. that would make him financially savvy. He's like savvy. an average <laughs> governor yeah. to me, but he's loving this. He's taking oh, all he of this in. Yeah. I don't see how he says in 2024, no. nah, I'll just wait to 2028. And that's just people screaming. Because that's a long time. People whispering in his ear. 
Hey, yeah. DeSantis, get in that race. Hey, we need you You're to stop Trump. President. You're the next of president course. of the United States. I won't States. vote for Trump. That. I'll vote for you. Yep. You are the future of the Republican Party. We got all the money lined up for you and all that. I have a hard time believing he says no I, to that. I just don't believe I'm with Ted on this. Yeah. I, I don't believe oh, the American it. voters want establishment right now. I mean, Joe Biden is establishment as but they, they come. But they voted for him. Right, well. 81 million people. Well, yeah, more votes than anybody. I'm not going to spread disinformation. Joe Biden got the most votes ever in American history, more than his predecessor, Barack Obama. I said it there. Jesus. I, yeah, and another right. reason I don't think that DeSantis will be able to sit it out if Nikki Haley runs, mm-hmm. if Mike Pompeo runs, if like a Chris Christie or some, yeah, why wouldn't he get in? Yeah. Why Why wouldn't he? Oh, get in? that's a good question, though. It, I mean, wouldn't, it's not just going to be right now, we're talking Trump versus DeSantis. There are there are a slate of candidates yeah. who are looking to one who run, and I think who will, even if Donald Trump gets in. I don't think Donald Trump will be able to get Nikki Haley out. Ooh, I don't no. think he will be able to get Pompeo out. Yeah. And maybe even like a Yunkin or something. Oh, a Larry Hogan. Oh, they'll do Merlin. it. Yeah. They'll do it. And I think DeSantis will say, well, why well, wouldn't I Who, who else is on the bench, Ted, for the Republican Party? Because we've already established, I, none of us can think of who's on the bench for the Democrats. <laughs> but who's on the bench for, for Republicans? Who, who is that one? Hillary Clinton <laughs> coming up the waves. What, what about the GOP? <laughs> who's, who's in the dugout waiting to get called up? Well, you, you look at that, the comments that you just made. All of these people are going to run, and they all have their small little contingency of voters. Every time another candidate gets in, it divides up the establishment never-Trumpers. Trump wants 10 people running against him. He's still going to have his base that will come out and vote, and he's going to win in these primary states, just like you guys said. And DeSantis, he's not going to be looking at it and saying, oh, well, Pompeo's in there, so I've got to get in there, and all of these other candidates are in there, so I've got to get in there, because he looks at the same... Uh, calculations, and he's saying we're all going to divide our vote, and Trump is going to kill us all. And in, look at the polls; the polls play that out. And I still say he's not going to get in because of that. Otherwise, he can count. But having said that, he is the bench; he is the future, and and so is um, Youngkin, and so is I'm blanking out on her name. The Nikki Haley from South, the governor from South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Haley. Nikki Haley. And and I think um, Katie Lake, or not Katie Lake, Carrie Lake um, is an up and rising star, even though she lost this election. I still think she's an up and rising star. There's going to be a lot of people out there that will run in 2024, and none of them will be able to come anywhere close to DeSantis. I mean, 20, 2028, DeSantis, if DeSantis wants to run in 2028, I think he's he is a rock star among rock stars. And uh, I think he's going to bide his time. So wait a minute. That is so what you don't with think Trump. like we're six years, you think six years early, DeSantis is the heir apparent in 2028. If he doesn't get in this time, I think Trump will anoint him. So uh, and oh, just a question I wanted to ask you. When you said that Carrie Lake is a rising star, uh, what's her next move? What what would she do politically? Well, I mean, Stacey Abrams was a two-time loser, and she still keeps appearing. Yeah, but she ran for governor again. Like, what's the next step for Carrie Lake politically? Like, what's her rising star to what? Would she just run for governor again, or? Or U.S. Senate. That, that, that seat's up here in two years. That's uh. 
uh, the cinema is, is doing everything she can to go to the metal and <laughs> radical leftist. Um, I think she could be a very formidable candidate running for the United States Senate. No, that's actually, I, I, I didn't think about Senate, but yes, but all of that would be depending upon what Carrie Lake does now. If she goes through whatever the recount, you know, get her lawyers, I'm all for people doing that. But if Carrie Lake goes down in flames, burning this whole notion of stolen election, I don't think that she'll be a good candidate for Arizona and the next go around. Maybe, you know, maybe she can take cinema seat. I agree. I think she would be competitive. Look how close she was in the governor's race. Only a point or so difference. But if Carrie Lake continues this stolen election stuff, I think she's going to see the same result that she saw this time around. But good point. She could run for Senate. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. She's going to have to play this um, very astutely, and we'll see how she handles it. I don't know. Ted? But to, to, one more point. Who is the Democrat bench? I don't believe Joe Biden will be the next nominee for the Democrat Party. because I don't know if he'll make it even to 2024. Um, in the White House. You guys are laughing. I think he's serious. And I, I, and I agree with him. I don't see how Biden. I mean, look at him now. Like, can you another two years? Of this? Like, I'm laughing feeble. instead of crying. Yeah. That's yeah. all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's he not looks a strong. Remember, I don't cry. remember in 2020 where he would try to jog. You know, <laughs> <laughs> now he's falling off bicycles and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. He takes like those very carefully measured. Steps yeah. now. Even like, it's, like, it's like that older person. I won't say old shuffle. people shuffle. Yeah. But. He it has is that the shuffle. old man shuffle. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Even him, so his, the way he talks or mm-hmm. the way he he's, communicates, he's, it's very spacey. I don't see him doing this. I mean, I don't know who's on the Democratic bench. I know you believe Kamala Harris. I don't buy the <laughs> Kamala Harris thing. I don't buy her at all um, because she couldn't even win her own state and she couldn't even get through the primaries. I remember when she was on the stage and she was talking about she was going after Tulsi Gabbard. Right. And at the end of it, she Tulsi was destroyed Tulsi her. destroyed her. And she sits afterwards. I think she was talking to Chris Matthews and she was like, well, I mean, she's not even, you know, these lesser candidates or something like that. Tulsi oh, that's a very snotty thing. To yeah, say, it was snotty right? thing to say. She was very never snotty. able to capitalize on her moment that um, I was that little girl. I was that little girl. She was never able to capitalize on that. But I don't and I'll say I don't think that Kamala Harris is the best person. I think why I say she will be the nominee is because the Democrats are stuck. Well, there's with nobody. Her. Well, here's not that she's the I, best. Ted, that's who you're stuck with. I threw in two dark horses earlier this year that Liz Cheney will flip parties and go Democrat. She already said that she would support. And she won't win in any yep, she's she's gonna win. squat. But still, <laughs> but still I would say she could be a dark dark horse that could flip parties and ruffle a lot of feathers. Um, and also deep, deep dark horse. Uh, the man who, ju- the billionaire who just lost the mayoral race in my home city of Los Angeles is Rick Caruso, who recently was a Republican and recently flipped to Democrat to run against Karen Bass. He has enough money to fund his own campaign. He doesn't need a super PAC. But theoretically, it could be billionaire versus billionaire because Rick Caruso is now a Democrat. Call your Democrat and uh, throw in mine. Um I, I would encourage everybody to continue to do their research on my governor, Jared Polis, who just won his reelection by 20 points. First gay governor, first gay governor in the history of the 
the United States, and he desperately wants to be the first gay president of the United States, and he's probably worth a billion dollars as well. Wow. Really? He's a billionaire? I didn't Booty know that. Judge ain't going for that. No, Booty Judge ain't going for that. How dare you, sir? Booty Judge needs to be able to get one black vote in order for me to even think he has any chance of, of doing anything. Right, Booty Judge is trying everything. He's like, but I'm a secretary right now. I'm married. I am gay. I am a retired a military officer. I have a baby. I took two months off. I have everything. Yeah. Ted. He's trying too hard to play that role. He, I mean, he threw, he threw his back into it. I give him that. Um, he just didn't do all that well. All that, but I mean, he was getting like zero percent of the black vote. I, I didn't even know that was possible. It's like there's zero. yeah, not even was, like the one grandma somewhere voted that, for him. Point one percent of the black, and you're like, dude. He Stop. got he got a point something a few uh, Asian votes. Yeah, but oh really? Like, yeah, very small. From a comms perspective, like Buttigieg is very good. Like he's actually oh, yeah. very. He can, he can, he's a good debater. He annoyed the hell out of he's me when smart. he jumped ahead and took Bernie Sanders. Thing. He was like, I won. It was like, you didn't win anything. I know. You didn't win anything. And then they came out, if it was like on CNN. He just looks like a who. Nonsense. He yeah. looks like Dr. Seuss, you know, a, a who. It just, it bothers me. It just bothers me. He looks like a who character. Um, Ted, thank you, man. I appreciate you joining us on this. I'm Ted Harvey. Ted Harvey, chairman of StopJoe.com. StopJoe.com. Senator Ted Harvey. I'm chairman of StopJoe.com. Thank let's, you for that, Ted. Always fun to talk to Ted. Let's take calls. We have about... We probably have one or two calls yeah, left one or two. in us. So the number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. StopJoe.com is hilarious to me. That's, yeah. It's just funny. I didn't, know that, I yeah. didn't know that Governor Paulus was... A billionaire. 20 point win. That's a massive win. That is win. brutal win. Pete I mean, Buttigieg is going to be pissed. Oh, man. That's that's Ron DeSantis, Mike DeWine stuff. That's, oh, really? Yeah, yeah that number of wins. About yeah. 20 points, too. Wow. wow. Well, see, Pete, I mean, Pete was just a mayor of a little town, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, what is, uh, what's the name South, of that place? South Bend. South, South Bend, Bend Indiana. Indiana. That's right. Um, we have Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? Hey, Tarif. Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to see Free Joe on sign. This is my, this is my um, comment for today. Yesterday, I got lucky. I had... Um, Good for you, Tarif. What's her name? <laughs> I'm <laughs> joking. I'm joking. Go ahead, Tarif. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I wish, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, I was watching the Useful, the Useful Idiots podcast with Aaron Mate. And, uh, and uh, also, I, you know, I, I tweeted out a comment on my... Um, Asking them, can they interview me? You know, it's you know, whistleblower Tyree Simon, and he had posted it on his screen for like five seconds. So hopefully they got it. And also, I hit them up in the inboxes at the useful idiot um at Twitter. So hopefully, maybe they, you know, I mean, Aaron make here a damn. By the way, that's Aaron Matei and Katie Halper, right? Yeah, them. So I mean, if they can hit hit me up and interview me and write an article dealing with my case, man, that would be helpful because you know Aaron Mate, he took on. The OCWP, whatever you call it. OPCW. OPCW. That's the that's the name of the organization I can remember earlier today. But yeah, he he was phenomenal. I mean, they mentioned him in the Washington Post recently. Mate, that yeah. he has a accent. Mate, Aaron Mate. Mate, yeah, yeah, it's French, yeah. No, no, he's not French. He's Hungarian. Oh, he's Hungarian. Uh huh. His dad is really interesting too, like a psychologist or something. Yeah, they're Hungarian. That is, yeah. But great points. Go ahead. Great Thank you, Tariq. Appreciate it. 
let's do this. Let's he's, go to. Tariq straight up solicited. Yeah, he's straightforward. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, interview me. Just interview me. Um, we have Brave, ATL, hey, Brave, but a minute, 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, maybe 90. Hey, I can get it out real quick. Um, two things. First on DeSantis. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the um the 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 video that the Gray Zone put out um concerning a breakdown a breakdown of DeSantis' military service and mm-hmm. the role he put in covering up um uh Gitmo. Yeah, at Gitmo and stuff. Um really horrible and, and even beyond it's really horrible. Um that I think everybody should get out. I think that's what Trump is talking about when he says that he will air DeSantis out if DeSantis tries to run. Interesting. Ooh. Oh, I have to check that out. I Manila, I said that to you, the link to it to you on uh, Instagram. Um and then concerning Trump, I I, I don't know if anyone else is noticing this. Uh I'm I'm not that smart, so I, I'm pretty sure everybody else knows, should be noticing this. It seems like um the things that Trump has gets hit for the, the things that they spin out out of control in the media are are things that I believe that all of these guys up there are doing. I think, I think these things are actually standard practice things, right? But because the American public has no insight into it, doesn't keep up with politics or anything, I think they air they air him out and they're able to put a, a thumbtack on him to make it look unique. It's like, oh, it's he's uniquely evil or something like that, even though many of these guys are probably doing the same thing. Brave, thank you, my man. Brave ATL. Look, I want to thank our engineers. Engineer, singular. I want to thank our producers, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. My name is Jamal Thomas. Fault Lines, back in the morning. Have a good one, guys. Thank you, Rumblers. Fault Lines.